I could destroy this planet. Why do you think I don't let you talk to your ship? I don't need the ship for that. You mean all by yourself with a disruptor? You can destroy this planet. That's exactly what I mean. I had no idea you were so formidable. You seem to think I'm joking. Bridge to all decks. It's time for Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. I'm Scott Nance. And I'm Steve Morris. And this one has been bouncing around in my head for a long time. And I cannot wait to talk about a taste of Armageddon. A taste of Armageddon. We're going to give you a taste of a very special episode of Enterprise Incidents because we have joining us a very, very special guest that I am honored and thrilled to have with us. He is a, first of all, I mean, we're talking about someone who is a very, very good friend of mine. Someone who I just admire and respect to pieces. Someone whose passion for for Star Trek knows no bounds. And someone who directed what I think is one of the very best Star Trek movies ever. His name is Robert Meyer Burnett. That he is the director of 1998's Free Enterprise starring William Shatner. He is the host of the daily YouTube series Observations. And he is the producer, writer, and editor of the DVD extras for the Blu-rays of Enterprise and The Next Generation, which include an amazing roundtable discussion with the cast of The Next Generation. And if you have not seen this roundtable discussion, then you are missing out. Welcome to Enterprise Incidents, Rob Burnett. I, I hope I'm worthy of that introduction. Thank you very much, Scott. That was very nice of you. That was very nice. Well, we we are definitely thrilled to have you. I have I have sang your praises to my my great friend here, Steve Morris, and you know we were talking all about you and about a taste of Armageddon. And so so my question, I'm going to start with you, Rob. Is first of all, what broke your cherry for Star Trek? I don't think I've ever <laughs> asked you this question. To be honest, I can't remember. You know, my mom says, my mom always says, oh, you were three when you started watching. And I'm like, mom, that's not possible because it went into strip syndication in 72. So I had to have been five. And I I don't remember the first episode of Star Trek that I ever saw. Wow. But I want to say it probably like would be the Doomsday Machine. Uh, but the thing about classic Star Trek was I was obsessed by it from the get-go like it was playing at six o'clock every night on channel 11 our independent station in seattle and i had to see it like if i couldn't watch it i would get upset it was i was i was almost like rain man wapner you know (laughs) i had to see i had to see captain kirk and i i it became what was really interesting is after i started watching it the animated series debuted soon after that and then the Franz Joseph technical manual and the blueprints were released in 75. So in that three-year period of time between when I was five and when I was eight, I was so immersed in Star Trek. And then my father was reading the James Blish novelizations. He would read them to me before I went to bed. And it got to the point where he, you know, he was not the fastest reader in the world. <laughs> I'm like, Dad, I love this. But then I started reading the Blish novelizations and it really it really started to get me into it broadened my horizons and I remember thinking the there was no 
City on the Edge of Forever in those books, there was the Unreal McCoy mm-hmm. was what That's that right. was called. And so I, I became obsessed with episode titles. And then the Concordance came out, B. Joe Trimble's Concordance with the wheel. And then, then I could really, you know, get into it. And I became a Star Trek scholar. Well, well, what, what do you remember about the first time you saw A Taste of Armageddon? Because, because I feel like A Taste of Armageddon is an episode that I've always liked. It is a, you know, the pacing is brisk. There's a lot of action. It's a great action adventure. And it features James T. Kirk at his boldest and most brash and taking a very, very big risk. Not the first time he did that. So do you remember like, like maybe not the first time, but in your, your early years as a young little Rob Burnett, uh, seeing a taste of Armageddon the first time? Yes. And the reason I remember it is because there are two planets in this episode. And one of the things I think never gets talked about enough is the color of the color that's inherent in the original series. And when there were two planets in the sky, it just added like there was nothing better than watching the Enterprise roll in and and, and go into standard orbit. But when there was another planet in the distance, which did not happen often, you know, it you knew something was going down. Like there was something big happening. Plus you had one of the great Federation ambassadors that you knew from the beginning was out of his league and, and, and the uniform, the outfit that he had on was so memorable. And, and when I was a kid, I was like, wow, there's, there's all of these extra things happening that I wasn't used to. And the production design in this episode is fantastic. And it was just something that as a kid, to me, this is a quintessential, I call it meat and potatoes episode of Star Trek. And it really, it was one of the most memorable episodes to me as a kid, just because it had so much going on in it. The idea that the Enterprise was technically shot out of the sky <laughs> and, and then they actually tried to do it for real, you know, and, and there was so much happening in this episode and watching it again, preparing for this, this podcast, it took me back. And another thing people might not remember, but this was one of the 12 original photo novels that they published. And uh, I loved it. You know, I, I love the photo novels because pre video cassette, uh, I mean, we all taped episodes on an audio cassette, but when you got <laughs> those photo novels, it was so awesome. And then this was one of them. Rob, I, Rob, I, I got to interrupt you for a second. I have been telling Steve Morris, you've got to get these photo novels on eBay. Like you, you have no first of all, they are they are still great, even by you know today's standards. Yep. And by the way, uh, A Taste of Armageddon was photo novel number four. So it followed A Trouble with Tribbles, and it was right before Metamorphosis. That's why I know that. But Steve Morris, okay, so back to what you were saying, Rob. Oh no, I mean it, it was just to me, you know, everyone talks about their 10 favorite original series episodes, and they're always the same. And Taste of Armageddon is not usually an episode that shows up in the top 10. But to me, when I tell people, people go, well, what's a quintessential Star Trek episode? I always start and say the Corbomite Maneuver. That, that pretty much gives you a really great taste of what Star Trek is. But I always follow it up with this because I think a Taste of Armageddon is what I like to call a meat and potatoes Star Trek episode. It's, it might not be on your top 10 list, but to me, it's quintessentially Star Trek. It embodies everything that a great Star Trek episode has. It has an incredible science fiction, high concept conceit, fighting a war with computers. And, well, we're not going to blow ourselves up for real. So we're just going to go into they, they They've turned they've used computers to turn war into something tidy. 
which is such a great idea and it's so <laughs> monstrous and it's so it's such great science fiction that I remember once you find out it starts out as a mystery like you don't really know what's hap- what's going on on this planet <laughs> like what's up here you know and when you find out there's the great moment where Spock says you know there's an entrance but no exit they go in but they don't come out and it's really harsh like if you think about it these people are are walking in gladly walking in to be exterminated and they're doing it by their own by their own volition by choice and you know as i grew older and watched this episode it gained in esteem for me because i'm like this episode is totally out of control. Like how they got it past standards and practices, I I, I always found because it's so everyone's so like happy about it. You know, Barbara Babcock, like, yeah, I'm just yeah, gonna go like walk showing in. This. Up. Yep, yeah, yep. I'm just gonna Mia or whatever Mia, Mia three, Mia three. three. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm out of here. You know, and <laughs> and it's it, it really is. It's 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 does it's everything that Star Trek does great. It's got great character stuff. It's got great science fiction in it. It's got a great moral dilemma. Um. And it has Kirk breaking the prime directive. All over the place. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All it's, over the place. And uh, uh, I don't think you could argue with him. And no so way. I, I, I can. <laughs> okay, wait, wait. Hang on. Okay, that, that brings us to Steve Morris. Like, what did you think in the earlier years? And how do you think A Taste of Armageddon has aged? So – uh, I always really love this episode. Uh, I agree with Rob. I don't. I don't. Wouldn't put it in my top ten, but I think it's a really, really strong episode. I always loved it. And in terms of like story and pacing, it's it's really tight. It really moves along well. There's so many great ideas, and this Scott is the first time there've been a lot of episodes that I watched that I gained a new appreciation for. This is the first episode that I gain new criticisms of. Oh. Like, like the stuff that is good, I still think is really good. And it has one of the great and most important Star Trek speeches of all time. But there's a but. <laughs> we'll okay. get into that as we go along. Yes, we will definitely get into that. And by the way, this is, uh, this is an episode that we've referenced a few times uh, in our deep dives that brought us up to this point because of that speech that Kirk says at the end. And that speech is the courtesy of the great Gene Kuhn, who was credited on this teleplay with Robert Hamner. Robert Hamner wrote the story and did take a few passes at an outline, at a, at a teleplay, but he was so extensively rewritten by Gene Kuhn that Gene Kuhn is also listed on that teleplay. Now, the, this is the third episode to be directed by Joseph Pevney. The air date, it aired on February 23rd, 1967. So it was the 23rd episode to air, but it was the 25th episode to film. And it was filmed between December 27th and January 4th, 1967, six production days. So it was on schedule, but no surprise, it was over budget. The total cost for A Taste of Armageddon was $194,108, which brought it over its $185,000 budget by $9,108. Good thing, good thing I have to say that the score was tracked because, Rob, like you said, the production values, the production design, the wardrobe, the extras, and certainly the scope of this episode are you know, to follow uh, uh, the return of the Archons. It is another big episode. And 
Robert Hamner's story outline came in on September 12, 1966. He wrote a third revised story outline, which was dated September 28th. And Stephen Karabatsis, who was the story editor for uh, the original series at the time, wrote a second script polish, a final draft dated November 28th. So then Gene Kuhn came in and did a final rewrite, a revised final draft teleplay dated December 12th. And uh, interesting to note that production was only three days away, but the script was still going through so many rewrites that they pushed back A Taste of Armageddon and moved up Space Seed on the schedule, which is why Space Seed was shot before A Taste of Armageddon. Scott, would you like to know some of the things that were going on in the world at the Uh, time when they were filming A Taste of Armageddon? Well, just like everything else that has happened throughout the 60s, can only imagine that a whole lot was going on. It's it's a heck of a week. So on, on December 30th, American forces, along with South Vietnamese, pursued Viet Cong forces into Cambodia for the first time and conducted a ground assault on a village called Ba Thê with 40 helicopters. Mm. And this is the beginning of Vietnam spreading into Cambodia. But at the same moment, on the same day, there was a secret plan to create a peace treaty called Operation Marigold, and it was run by Polish and Italian diplomats, along with Henry Cabot Lodge, the American ambassador. And on the same day we're going into Cambodia, the attempt to, to make peace failed. Wow. On December 31st, the biggest art theft of all time up to that point took place at London's Dulwich Gallery. They stole three Rubens, three Rembrandts, two other paintings valued at an estimated $20 million then. $20 wow. million. They said, we're going to, well, we ransomed them for a hundred thousand pounds. They didn't send in the money. They found three of the paintings a couple of days later. And about a week after that, they found the rest of the paintings rolled up and wrapped in old newspaper and left behind a bush. $20 million worth of Rembrandts and Rubens. Amazing. Amazing. What else um, happened, Steve? Well, on the, on January 1st, New Year's Day, Medicaid went into, uh, into effect. And on the same day, police raided a gay bar in Los Angeles called the Black Cat. And they arrested patrons for kissing to celebrate New Year's. This was at midnight. And this has started a huge, huge what was described them as a, a as a riot, but maybe it should better be described as a large demonstration. And this is for gay rights two years before Stonewall. Um, this one is crazy. Is it important? No. But I have to tell you this story because it's <laughs> nuts, which is that there's a small town in Connecticut called Ellington, and they have a small airstrip. And there's a pilot trying to land at the small airstrip on a very cloudy, very rainy day with no visibility. And the and his radio has gone out. And the people of Ellington can hear the plane circling around the airstrip. And so they call the fire department and the fire department Get, says everybody in town, get your cars and drive to the airstrip. And so the fire trucks in every car in this small town pointed their headlights at the airstrip, and this guy was able to land his plane. That is an amazing story. <laughs> what a great story! Yeah, that's Isn't a great it? Like, story. Like I was, I debated about talking about it because it's not like it's important or political, but it sure is cool. Um, on January second, we had something called Operation Bolo again in Vietnam, and it was an attempt to lure in North Vietnamese MiGs, fighter planes, to destroy them. And this was the largest air battle in Vietnam up to this point, and this is how they did it. They put up a bunch of older jets, which were F-105 interceptors. They were Captain John Christopher's jets, 
and they were they put them in the air to lure the MiGs in because the MiGs were more advanced. And then up come some uh, F4C Phantom Twos out of nowhere, and they kill they they shot down at least five and maybe up to seven North Vietnamese MiGs. Oh uh, yes, Captain John Christopher. He he might have been there. He might have been there. <laughs> um, Ronald Reagan was sworn in as governor of California at twelve oh one a.m. Why was he sworn in at twelve oh one a.m.? Because that's when Nancy Reagan's astrologers told him it, he should be. <laughs> and this one is really interesting to me, just based on the episode we're going to talk about, which is on January fourth. Israel's Ministry of Defense chose not to return fire from a mortar attack from Syria in order to prevent an escalation into war. Mm. They chose not to be a barbarian today. today. (laughs) You know, most of the time that Steve and I have uh, done these episodes of Enterprise Incidents, we've agreed completely on on everything except one episode, which was The Squire of Gothos, where I love The Squire of Gothos because I I think Trillian's a fun character. I think William Campbell just really crushed it. He's such a great guest star. But Steve found Trillian to be really annoying, and it, it uh, hmm. kind of dampened his enthusiasm for the episode. So, so we didn't agree, and I find that when you don't quite agree on something, it makes for a more lively conversation. So I have no doubt, based on that little tease, Steve, that you gave uh, before you know, the history lesson, that uh, this is going to be uh, an engaging conversation. The Enterprise is en route to star cluster NGC-321. Objective? open diplomatic relations with the civilizations known to be there. I just want to point out, Uhura says for, I'm sure somebody knows the number, how many times she said hailing frequencies are open. Nothing yet, Lieutenant. Nothing, Captain. Hailing frequencies are open. Nichelle Nichols looks so bored. And I just feel so bad for her that she literally had to say the same sentence over and over and over again. It just, I feel bad. But you know know what? This is part of the reason why she was at a point where yeah. she was like ready to ready to bail. Of course, everybody knows the story that you know Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, "Do not even think about leaving Star Trek." But, but you know, I I mean, I still think that that Michelle Nichols. I mean, her 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 presence on Star Trek was so much more than like words words she had to say. Don't you think, Rob? Oh yeah, no, I I completely agree, and I I think that what was. I've told this story before, but she was the first person I ever had a crush on. No, oh, like good when choice. I was when I was a when I was a kid. Like I didn't I didn't understand racism. You know, I just thought <laughs> Lieutenant Hura was this beautiful woman, and I I loved the way her like her her green her jade earrings were offset by the color of her skin. And by the time you when I first saw Mirror Mirror for the first time, and you see you see her exposed midriff, I'm like, okay. <laughs> That's what I want. <laughs> and, and I just, I, you know, I loved her. And, and there's, she has one of my favorite line readings ever when she says, Captain, I'm frightened. Yeah. You know? Oh, from and Sitting on the Edge of Forever. Yeah. Sitting on the Edge of Forever. And it's so, that, that bit of her acting is so great. And I do think that one of the great, one of the great unfortunate things about the original series is she was not given more to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She mm-hmm. never had an episode that put her front and center. I mean, Mirror Mirror did. She had a great scene on the bridge with George Takei. Sure. But it, it never gave her a chance. Like, at least in the next generation, everybody got a, an episode right. that focused on them. And mm-hmm. I understand the 60s, it was different. It was Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. You know, it was the Troika. And then Scotty would would give an able assist. But 
uh, Uhura never got her due. And Agreed. I understand. Yeah, I understand that she it meant a lot like the, the story, whether it's apocryphal or not, of Martin Luther King telling her to stay on the show, I think was very important because she was part of the command crew. And just by virtue of her being there, it said a lot in the 1960s. And I think that was something that was definitely it needed it needed to be happening. And it resonates to this day. A hundred percent agree. I think I think the thing I'm reacting to, Scott and I have commented a lot that, man, Sulu was so well developed. They put so much effort into who this guy was and her is the opposite. You right. know, That's where it's right. like there was there was so much potential here. There was so much you could have done. And just, man, it's it had to be rough for her to show up to work and say hailing. For, you know, we did uh, Return on the Archons recently where she's there on screen. She doesn't have a line. You know, that's rough as an actor. Well, yeah. in this um, episode, uh, George Takei isn't in this episode at all. Uh, you know, they gave his lines to a Lieutenant DePaul, uh, played by Sean Kenny, who was in Arena and also played the injured Captain Pike in the uh, mm-hmm. envelope portion of the Menagerie. But but one thing about, about this teaser is, you know, you can feel the tension on the bridge. Kirk is pacing back and forth. You know, there's there's no word from a Mini R7. And, uh, and in the early outline written by Robert Hamner, who, you know, was a very, very prolific writer-producer in the 60s, mm. uh, which shows like Hawaiian Eye, The Fugitive, and Wild Wild West. He wrote five episodes of Lost in Space, and he was a producer on TV shows like A Man Called Shenandoah, Run for Your Life, and he was the creator of the SWAT TV series. Mm. So he's very prolific, but just did one episode of Star Trek, and in his early outline, Instead of approaching Amini R7 with, uh, on a mission to open diplomatic relations, uh, it, it, the Enterprise is severely damaged by a meteor shower and heads to Amini R7, which is the closest planet. But when they get close and request permission to assume a standard, standard orbit, they are refused permission, but the Enterprise is in dire straits and Kirk, you know, doesn't listen and he goes anyway. But there is a lot of tension on the bridge, and that tension gets even thicker when Ambassador Robert Fox walks through the turbulence. What do you think of Robert Fox, Rob? Well, I, I, I mean, <laughs> there's a long line of Federation ambassadors that are kind of douchey, you know, <laughs> and, and, and you know it became almost a Star Trek trope when somebody was was on the bridge of the Enterprise. They did a few of those in in uh, in Star Trek. Your beloved episode had had a had, <laughs> yeah. had a had a had a Star Trek ambassador. But I it was interesting because he looked pretty officious and he looked pretty serious. And I I actually kind of liked him. You know, he wasn't at first I I liked him. I thought it was uh, it meant something interesting was going on. And I always wondered what the backstory was. To this episode like mm-hmm. how did they know they're going there on purpose you know they're going there because they're going to open relations with a a a new race of of beings that that obviously that had been vetted by starfleet because that's why they were going there and i always wondered how did they find all of this out well you know and, and how did they pick him to be the ambassador to be on the enterprise well well there is a quick line uh, in which uh, Ambassador Fox says, for the past 20 years, thousands of lives have been lost in this area because the Federation didn't have diplomatic relations with with Amini R7. And it's almost like a throwaway line. And it wasn't right. something I really noticed until I was really doing like a an in-depth 
rewatch of this episode, I was like, because otherwise I was like, well, so what? If Amini R7 doesn't want to have diplomatic relations, they don't have to have diplomatic relations. Steve, well, what do you think? And it's not, it's not just that they don't want to have diplomatic relations. They put out something called Code 710. Is that supposed to mean something? Code 710 means under no circumstances are we to approach that planet. No circumstances whatsoever. You will disregard that signal, Captain. So right now we're balancing what seems to be some sort of, you know, galactic treaty about this Code 710 with this thing that Ambassador Fox says about thousands of lives being lost in this area. Now, it never it's never made sense to me. I think it's a lame excuse. I think because it just does it's a throwaway line. Why mm-hmm. are thousands of lives being lost particularly here because you don't have a treaty port with this planet? Why why are you flying through here? And I think they needed to come up with a reason that was important personally. I like the original reason better. I think this episode would have, I would have had less problems with this episode if the Enterprise was damaged and everyone was going to die. And that's why they violated these rules. Because now what we have is, and, and of course, we can't not think of the Federation and the U.S. government, you know, they're, they're you know, together. And so what we have is our guys wanting to force something onto a planet, a sovereign planet that says, hey, we don't want, we'd stay away. Mm. And we're forcing our ways in. So Mm. right now, I am not a big fan of Ambassador Fox. We mean to have that port, and I'm here to get it. By disregarding Code 710, you might well involve us in an interplanetary war. I'm quite prepared to take that risk. You are? I'm thinking about this ship. My crew. I have my orders, Captain. And now you have yours. You will proceed on course. Achieve orbit status and just leave the rest to me. Rob, you mentioned uh, other Starfleet Federation ambassador types, commissioner types, uh, and it did get to be, unfortunately, uh, a trope that was used over and over again. Uh, I think the first time we really saw something like this was in the Galileo 7 with uh, Commissioner Ferris. But I think it's interesting when you see that Kirk has to answer to a higher power. Yes. You know, Ambassador Fox does not look like a happy person at all. Uh, Ambassador Fox is played by Gene Lyons, who had done TV like Goodyear Playhouse, Craft Theater, going back to the earliest days of television. And he played Commissioner Dennis Randall on 66 episodes of Ironside. Mm. But uh, yes, so Fox gives Kirk the direct order to assume a standard orbit around a mini R7. And what Kirk has said is this could start a war. And I just want to contrast this very briefly with Balance of Terror, where it's like, we will do everything in our power to not start a war. And here it's like, no, no, you got to go in. So we might. That's a good point. That's a really good point. I love the end of this teaser. I've always loved the end of this teaser when, when Kirk says, We're going in, gentlemen. Peacefully, I hope. But peacefully or not, we're going in. I always thought saw that as a dig, you know, a dig on yeah. Fox because he's making sure that Fox knows that I'm not cool with this and I'm I want to voice my concerns here and he does. I've always loved that because it was Kirk doing what he can. I mean, obviously he's bound by duty and his protocol, Starfleet protocol, but still I do like the fact that even then Kirk's like, "All right, but I'm I'm going to tell you, dude, I don't like it." 
<laughs> and rightly so. Yeah. Uh, we, we come back from the act and we get a little bit more information about Amini R7. We hear that they have do have space flight, but they never wanted to go beyond their solar system. We The, the Federation had contact with them 50 years ago. And at that time, Amini R7 was at war with its nearest neighbor. And the only other thing we find out is that Earth expedition 50 years ago, they never returned. And that Earth expedition was the USS Valiant, which was the name, the same name of the starship that was uh, lost a hundred years before in the energy barrier at the end of the galaxy. Mm. Uh, you know, the with the after they encountered the, uh, you know, the explosions that that almost destroyed the Enterprise. So uh, whether it's uh, you know they just didn't think, you know, the writers and producers didn't think, oh well, so let's use the same name, big deal, no one's going to notice. Well. Uh, you can't get anything by Star Trek fans who've seen these episodes, you know, 300 times. Right. Uh, but maybe it's just a different version of the Valiant. But anyway, it was the well, Valiant. Well, I mean, there have been lost. lots of ships. There have been lots of ships named Enterprise. Why can't there be lots of ships named Valiant? Exactly. Of course, it's about you going down alone. Not alone, Mr. Ambassador. I'm taking some security people with me. It is my prerogative. I can't risk beaming you down there until I know what kind of reception you're going to receive. Your safety is my responsibility. Those are my orders, sir. Kirk is is able to stick it back to him. And, you know, he doesn't like it, but he's got to stay on the Enterprise. And he leaves Scotty in charge. Uh, you know, that was starting to happen a lot more often because the network executives at NBC realize that they, they really uh, like having Scotty in charge. I think he has such a great personal strength about him. Scotty is solid. We feel good with the Enterprise in his hand and we beam down. And I think this is another example where the enhanced effects, they did a really, really nice job of keeping the basic designs of that background and then just giving you a little bit more. Absolutely. The original design, I mean, you know, the matte paintings done by Albert Whitlock are still, if you're watching the episode with the original visual effects, are still amazing. I mean, Rob, when you look at the landscape of a mini R7 and the landscape of Delta Vega and the Starbase, uh, you know, or or Rigel 7, you know, from uh, the Cajun and Menagerie, I mean, even 55 years later, Albert Whitlock's matte paintings are absolutely gorgeous. Gorgeous. And, you know, what I thought was really interesting too is you didn't know it at the time, but there's I now look at look back at it and and the idea that there was probably these prefab building <laughs> designs right and then that when they would go and establish a star base somewhere they probably had you know whether the equivalent of 3d printing or they would use industrial transporters and and transport these large scale designs down uh, or, or they would just have stores of of raw matter that would be then converted into buildings and I like the fact that there was kind of a similar look. It was sort of a similar Starfleet look across all of these these different paintings, which, again, was just something that made Star Trek interesting to me. One of the things I think my Star Trek fandom had in it was there was this continuity of the universe, of the world building that happened in Star Trek, whether they were consciously aware of it, like using the Valiant twice, which they probably, you know, they didn't, it didn't matter to them. But like, this is the first episode where you actually hear the, the term United Federation of Planets. For the you know, first they time. mentioned it. Yeah, they mentioned it in Arena. They mentioned the Federation, but the United Federation of Planets. And it was interesting because, you know, if you're a Star Trek fan, how does the United Earth Space Probe Agency fit into all this? And I'm like, well, it's just different. You know, they're talking about different divisions, but the Federation was always there. And people are like, wow, they, they hadn't developed that in the first part of the first season. And I'm like, 
Yeah, but it doesn't matter because there's no you don't walk around and talk about your own government's agencies wherever you go. You talk about different agencies when they come up. Our That's a really good point. That is an yeah. excellent point, Rob. You know, and everyone always says that. Well, what about this? I'm like, well, you don't talk about everything. I mean, the United Earth Space Probe Agency could have been a division of Starfleet. You know, but when Starfleet, once they once they had other uh, alien races, they didn't call it the United Earth Space Probe Agency anymore. But it probably still existed within Starfleet because it was there before Starfleet existed. Sure. So, yeah. you know, I I've always loved all that about about that. And I love the fact that this episode, the fact that it does state that there was previous relationships with with Aminiar and that people hadn't come back. And so it was a place that we knew about that we were just getting back to. I mean, I love this idea that, wow, we haven't been there in 50 years because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. space is big. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, you're not just zipping around the galaxy with a drive that can get you wherever you want to go in an instant. You ha- it takes time. And, and I, I like that space, the idea that space was large was conveyed in this episode. I, I, that's a really good point. And one of the things I always liked about, about the original series was most of the time, you really felt that the Enterprise was really way the hell out there. I just think that you know, in the later shows and certainly the later movies, like they're always near a star base, there are always other starships around. You know, Kirk's Enterprise was absolutely out where no one had gone before. And Steve, I, you brought up a really good point about balance of terror. Like when we we're talking about how tense it is on the bridge and how how tense Kirk is, because so he's been in a situation where. He was brooding over his decision to follow the Romulans back across the neutral zone. But yet then in Arena, he was very bold and brash and aggressive in pursuing the Gorn uh, to the point where you know the Metrons interfered. So now he's in a situation where he's being forced into uh, orbit around the planet where their very presence could start a war. And no wonder he's uptight about it. I 100% agree. And what's interesting, too, is that this is not a primitive planet. They've mm. scanned the Enterprise, and we meet Maya 3, who knew exactly where they were going to beam down. I congratulate you on your instrumentation. You've come directly to the Division of Control. And Maya 3, by the way, played by Barbara Babcock, who, while we will see her in season three's Plato's Stepchildren, we already heard her as the voice of Trelane's mother in yes. the episode that I love, Steve, The Squire of Gothos. And, <laughs> you know, the earlier versions of this outline written by Robert Hamner described a city like like that we see in the movie Metropolis. It mm. was much bigger, bolder, was much more futuristic. The residents and the inhabitants rode around in bubble cars Robert H. Justman, who was in charge of, among other things, keeping the budget down as best he could, you know, he's reading these early outlines and these early teleplays like having a conniption uh, because it's going to cost so much money. So Gene Kuhn dialed it back, but not knowing any of this, not knowing anything about the earlier versions of the story, Rob, like you pointed out, you're watching this episode and you're going like, wow, this is a this episode is big for so many reasons. Like when you see them beam down to a meteor and it's pretty advanced, pretty technological, mm-hmm. pretty established. There's a lot of extras. You know, I always talk about Jerry Finnerman's cinematography as I should because, I mean, his cinematography is fantastic. But you got to give a whole lot of credit in this episode to Bill Tice, the costume designer 
because oh, he yeah. really had his work cut out for him. And I don't mean just with May 3. <laughs> Why did your people tell us to stay away? It was for your own safety, Captain. I see no danger here. The danger exists. And this is key to the whole show because what we've described is this civilization that looks like it's totally working. And so, of course, we see no danger. But the danger is what you cannot see. Um, and she says that Anon 7, who's their leader, is waiting for them. And we head over to meet them. And we have a very formal meeting with Anon 7 in the council room. Anon 7, played by David Opatashu. He is an Emmy winner for Outstanding Guest Actor in a Drama Series for Gabriel's Fire. His very first Hollywood credit in 1939 for a film called The Light Ahead on TV, going way, way back to the early days of TV with the Philco Television Playhouse, mm. Studio One, also on you know the usual trope shows like One Step Beyond, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, Mission Impossible. He was even in Buck Rogers in the 25th century. But this is very interesting. I never knew until prepping for this episode that the great bird of the galaxy himself, Gene Roddenberry, once considered David Apatashu for Dr. Boyce in The Cage. Mm. Rob, did mm. you know this? I did not know that. Interesting, it makes, right? <laughs> it makes sense to me. I mean, first of all, I love his character. Me too. I love the way he acts in this. I love everything about him. I've always loved his voice. I've loved his demeanor. You know, he's one of these people that, again, it was always when I was a kid, I would always love it when somebody would beam down to a planet. You'd find these really interesting people that weren't, they weren't villains, they were right. antagonists, and that's what I love about Star Trek, and I think that's something that's been forgotten, that the original series never really had villains. There were antagonists, and and everything was not black or white. You, you find out over the course of the episode that he's really trying to protect his people and his planet, mm -hmm. and his demeanor at first might seem, I mean, he almost looks, even with his, with his goatee, a little villainous. You know, and but I think he looks great. I, I love the way I love the costume. I just love everything about him. And I think he's one of the great. Again, nobody talks about him when they come up. Tell us your 10 favorite Star Trek guest stars. <laughs> he's one of my favorites. I think he's great. I really agree. And I think he has you could feel the weight of what he's trying to do. And what's so interesting is that. We're used to seeing bad guys, just like you say, you know, like in other shows, there's going to be the bad guy. Well, everything they've said up to this point is true. They didn't want them here for the safety of the enterprise. And now they, Kirk is talking to him saying, hey, we want to establish some diplomatic relations. And he says that's impossible because of the war. Sir, we have completely scanned your planet. We find it highly advanced, prosperous in a material sense, comfortable for your people and peaceful. In the extreme, yet you say you are at war. There is no evidence of this. Casualties among our civilian population total from one to three million dead each year from direct enemy attack. And multiply that for 500 years. That's, that's a lot of dead people. That is a lot of dead people. It's monstrous. And in the midst of talking about the war, the war comes to us because we hear alarms and these doors open to the war room. Please excuse me. Bendikar is attacking. I love the design of this space. It's one of, I think it's really, really beautifully done. It's incredible production design. You know, in, in, in the great Star Trek tradition, you did see a lot of these set pieces show up in other places like 
the shuttlecraft and the immunity syndrome later. And I, the, the computer, the war computers are, are, there's something about them. They're so cool. It's funny because Star Trek nowadays doesn't get the credit it deserves for what it did back in the sixties. Yeah. But it really conveyed a sense of, okay, there's this technology and these computers, they're overseeing the whole planet. Uh, This is high technology, Star Trek style. Now we look at it and we, we laugh, but, Back growing up, whenever this episode would air, I I couldn't wait to see this war room. I was very excited to see it. What's so interesting to me is one of the things people don't understand when they're watching science fiction in particular is that someone had to figure it out. Someone sat there and went, what does the war room of the future of this alien race look like? And what's crazy about it is that we have things today that are modeled after what science fiction people came up with in the mid-60s. Yep. You know, because they really put real thought into it. They put a lot of thought into, into, into the original series, especially this episode. Oh. What is it? A hit right here in the city. Kirk checks with the Enterprise. Anything unusual? Nothing, sir. All quiet. And then Spock figures it out. Computers, Captain. They fight their war with computers, totally. And what I love is that Meteor 7 says, well, of course. How else would you do it? They've, they've figured it out and they've rationalized it because their civilization and their technology is allowed to thrive and evolve and prosper. And, and Anson says, in, you know, in a real war, you wouldn't have been able to do that. So they've taken war and made it so, so impersonal and so logical that Spock, Spock even says, I understand. I mean, he doesn't approve but he understands the scientific logic to it. And for Spock to admit that, that speaks volumes. And I love, there's a great blooper from the old blooper reels. Remember, Rob? Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, yeah. Where Kirk says to Anand Seven uh, in, in the actual episode, he says, do you mean to tell me that you fight your war with computers? And then the blooper, it shows Shatner saying, do you mean to tell me? And he waits a beat because he forgot the rest of his line. And he goes, that was quite a thing. Quite a thing you told me. <laughs> <laughs> Spock's quote is it's it's great. He says there is a certain scientific logic about it, and in Seven's like, I'm glad you approve. I do not approve. I understand. <laughs> and I always love that exchange. It's like what Spock said about Trelane in the Squire of Gothos. Uh, I object to you. I object to power without a constructive purpose. There is no constructive purpose to the power here because they're allowing one to three million people each year just by walking into a a disintegration chamber because a computer told them to. How is there no constructive purpose? Well, the technology is there, but the people are still dying. Right. But if if you believe that the only alternative is horrible war – destroying your civilization and causing not only suffering to the people that die, but untold suffering to everybody else, there is a constructive purpose. Now, I, I don't agree with it, but it is it, it has a logic to it, as Spock says. There's a lot of things and a lot of civilizations and a lot of cultures that do a lot of stuff that I don't agree with. But, and some of that stuff costs lives. But the ultimate end game here is that if you're going to fight a war, then fight a war. Take away the tidiness of it all, fight a real war with real weapons, or you can not fight a war at all. I warned you not to come here. You chose to ignore my warning. I'm sorry, but it's happened. 
What has happened? Once your ship was in orbit about our planet, it became a legitimate target. It has been classified destroyed by a tri-cobalt satellite explosion. Now, in early versions, it wasn't the Enterprise that was declared a casualty. It was Kirk and the landing party. But the change was made to make the Enterprise and its crew casualties so that Kirk would have something really big to fight for. I think that's a very smart change. I also think this is one of the many episodes, including uh, Return of the Archons, which we did recently, including the Apple, where the threat to the Enterprise makes the question different because because we we can have all these situations where Kirk is going to mess with some civilization. And one thing that we talked about with Return of the Archons, which I want to talk about in this episode and in future episodes, is if you remove the threat of the Enterprise, Mm -hmm. is Kirk going to make the right choice? And that's something I want to get to as we go along. All persons aboard your ship have 24 hours to report to our disintegration machines. In order to ensure their cooperation, I have ordered you, Captain, and your party held in custody until they surrender. And you see the security guard reach for his phaser, and Kirk shakes his head. It's a great moment. He says, like, don't. But then, like the Armenian security guards break in, Kirk reaches for his phaser, but it's too late. And the final moment of the act is great. If possible, we shall spare your ship, Captain, but its passengers and crew are already dead. Wow. Ouch. That's that's how you end an act, right, Rob? <laughs> uh, uh, no, absolutely. And and this episode does a great job in terms of showing how an episode of Star Trek is structured and just how a, an episode of 60s television was so well written. Yeah, we're living in the golden age of TV for the last 20 years, but no one I would I would well, we'll see because we'll see with strange the upcoming strange new worlds. It, it isn't uh, serialized, and when Star Trek was was telling episodic stories, nobody was doing it better. And this is a prime example. Yeah, every single act out is just masterful. It's Act Two, and they are in some sort of what looks like a very very nice sort of holding area. And in comes <laughs> Maya Three to ask if they require anything, and Kirk is like, "I want to talk to a non seven. He's busy coordinating casualty lists. And I love Kirk's reply. He'll have more casualty lists than he knows what to do with if he doesn't get in here and talk to me. You said it at the beginning, Scott. Kirk is at his most aggressive, I think, in this episode. He is so ready to throw down from beginning to end. The brashness that, that we are we have seen in, in Kirk in the last couple of episodes, especially in Arena, the way he's just, he's going after the Gorn. That is absolutely a character- development instilled by Gene Kuhn. Under Roddenberry, when Roddenberry was the day-to-day producer, his Kirk was more of a Horatio Hornblower type, much more brooding, feeling the burden, the weight of command. And I love the way Gene Kuhn defined the characters. He brought a lot of levity to the show. He made the shows more about like messages and allegories and metaphors. Uh, he showed more of an arc to the characters in each episode where they start off one way and there's a a complete arc to the way they end the episode. But Rob, do you agree that Gene Kuhn made Kirk just very aggressive? Well, I think he made, I I, I don't know if so much I would call it aggressive, but as a man of, of decisive action. 
I think Gene Kuhn was the architect of putting Kirk in difficult situations and show how he would use his brashness to get out of those situations. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So he was doing both things. He was giving us great stories that had real high stakes and at the same time showed how Kirk could, it didn't matter how dire the situation was, Kirk would step up and, and be a man of action. And I think that's one of the reasons people loved Kirk. Certainly one yeah. of the reasons I love Kirk, you yeah. know, and, and yet it, it, there's a thing about him also is that he immediately sees the ridiculousness of this situation. He doesn't need Spock to explain anything to him. He's just like, this is dumb. You know, and, and, and we we're the proxy. The audience is sort of that we're, we're seeing it through his eyes and we're like, yeah, it, it, this is dumb. You've turned war into something that you can live with as a proxy for the audience. Kirk is thinking the whole time exactly what I was thinking, which is this is silly. This is just monstrously it's ridiculous. It's absurd. It's yeah. it's a, I, I, Steve, I have a feeling that you are rationalizing the way the Amenians are, are, are carrying out their war. And that you have a problem with Kirk pulling the plug and basically taking the chance that the Amenians and the Vendicans would rather stop fighting than risk fighting a real war. Well, let's hold off on those questions. Okay. We got a long way to go. We're only in Act Two. <laughs> I, I do want to say, uh, just in terms of Kirk and how his character, if he's changed, and in terms of how brash he is, I think the difference to me is that. What we saw in the first 10 or 15 episodes was we talked a lot about Kirk being the observer, that he would observe, observe, really understand the situation, and then absolutely act aggressively. He would, once he decided to make the Corbinite maneuver, once he decides to make his move, he makes his move. And now he's making his move a lot earlier. You know, he is, he is immediately jumping in. Don't you understand? Our duty now Your duty doesn't include... Stepping into a disintegrator and disappearing. I'm afraid mine does, Captain. I too have been declared a casualty. So the first thing about uh, Maya being listed as a casualty, she was standing right next to Captain Kirk during the attack. So I'm not entirely sure. Maybe there was another attack we don't know about. But here's my question. <laughs> she says her duty does include stepping into a disintegration chamber. Do you think that that is her duty? And does she have an admirable quality of courage for being willing to do it? Rob, what do you think? <sighs> well, do I think she's courageous because she's going to do it? Yeah. I don't. I think that these are people that, that have been born and bred to believe in this thing. It's just become a part of life. And I don't think courage has anything to do with it. I think it's just from the time they've been born and bred to understand. I mean, because small children... I'm sure have to walk into these disintegration booths yep. too. So it's one of the, and that's something they don't get into if they really wanted to get dark. Oh yeah. You know, they, they, they would, they would have shown children like a whole, well, my elementary school class was killed today, you know, and they would have had like 25 kids walk into a disintegration booth holding hands or something. That would have been dark. <laughs> that would have been dark. But, but I think though, I think that one of the things is the way she, the way she plays it, the way Barbara Babcock plays it. It's just like, what do you, this is just, this is, you know, this is my life. Yep. That's not what, what she says. She says, My life is as dear to me as yours is to you, Captain. But how can you stand? Don't you see? If I refuse to report and others refuse, then Vandekar would have no choice but to launch real weapons. We would have to do the same to defend ourselves. More than people would die then. 
a whole civilization would be destroyed. But wait yes. a minute, Steve. Wait a minute, Steve. You know, like Rob pointed out, this is the life that she knew. You're talking about a war that not only lasted for 500 years, right? but this is the way the people have been educated for 500 years. Yes. So I think that she's courageous for stepping into the chamber. No, I think she would have been courageous if she said no. So I think she's weak because she's- Yeah, well, maybe weak isn't the right word either. It's just the way these people have been taught to live their lives, knowing that their life span could be cut short, that the odds are that that you will not live a full natural life. And when it's your time, it is your time, and you just have to accept it. That is the way the citizens of Aminiar 7 have lived for 500 years. Yeah, and I think that what's what's- what I've always also thought was scary about this episode and what I thought was, you know, really, it's kind of unspoken, but the idea that these people have never thought about any other way of life. They've all just completely accepted. They were born into a world where this war has been raging for hundreds of years and no one ever, at least we don't see any dissenters. There's nobody saying, I'm not going to get into this booth. It seems to me that the entire civilization has accepted this because we don't get and I have to take it at face value that there are no dissenters, that everybody has accepted this. So the entire planet, imagine being born into a world where this is normal. It's been normalized. I mean, think about how far back if we went uh, uh, 500 years back the way our civilization would be. I mean, look at the technology that we've had in 500 years. Imagine what this was like, like their technology hasn't increased. It had to have been the same for 500 years, because wh- why would you have any incentive to make better technology? It's by not the way, like- you, you, It's a good point. You're, and you're not talking about a country. You're talking about a planet. A planet. You're, you're, and, not, and- you're not talking about a, a, you know, a world like ours where you know, you've, you've got the United States and then you've got Vietnam and now you've got Afghanistan. Uh, you were talking about a, a planet that this has been the way it's been for 500 years. And you're right. Just because we haven't seen uh, any kind of uh, dissent or protests or riots trying to overthrow, like like you know, we're not, I'm not getting into that chamber, you know, like a like a someone burning their draft card like they did in the '60s, doesn't mean it wasn't there. Uh, I'll tell you something else too that I've always wondered about this episode is, like, even though the war is being fought by computers, are there still people building weapons? Like, have they been saying, okay, you're using tri cobalt? satellite bombs but what if we built something that would counter those bombs so we've could you come up with virtual technology to fend off the attacks from vendicar Mm. could they say that well we just figured out how to build a space orbital shield that prevents your bombardments you know and and then the computer the, the the vendicarian computer would have to counter and like well okay so they would be having a arms race but it would only be in the virtual space to the point where like and, and these are questions i think if they wrote the episode now they might get into but it's almost like their technological development has also been frozen for 500 years because no one's coming up with like a doomsday machine or something <laughs> you know like you know what we've decided to do we've decided to build a planet killer and we're we're going to shoot it at you and now we've destroyed your entire planet your entire race now has to get into disintegration booths 
but they've never they don't they don't give any indication that they've done that. And That's I always a good thought, point. you know, I've always thought, you know, when we're getting older as as I was going as a kid, I loved this episode. But then that was always one of the questions that I was wondering, like, are they having a virtual arms race? And do they do they make weapons? Well, these weapons only killed 1.5 million people, but are they going to have weapons that kill 10 million mm, or 20 million? And, and it seems like even the war itself, there's no escalation. It's just completely status quo. And that's it. And so they haven't made it too monstrous. They figured out that, okay, we're going to be at war, but no one's going to drop a nuke. We're only going to kill a couple million people, maybe. So... uh I've been quiet for a very, very long time. Yes, I'm waiting and, for you, Steve. <laughs> and so I'll say this first. First of all, I don't think there's any evidence that there's been no technological advance. In fact, I think it's the opposite. I think part of their choice of not having real war has allowed them to advance because they're not having their cities destroyed. I think that the the method of computer controlled war doesn't really bear a lot of scrutiny. I think I think it's I think just as you say, uh, Rob, it's it's. It doesn't quite make sense. I think if for it to have worked, there have to be some D&D rules where you roll some dice and figure out damage and things like that. And Vendikar and Aminiar had to have agreed on what those things were. And if there was technological advancement, they had to have some conversation to work it out, which they say they haven't had because they haven't spoken to each other in centuries. So at least to some degree, the way the war is being waged has not changed. But I don't think that means that the technology hasn't changed. As far as whether or not people are resisting. Again, we could assume that nobody is, but I don't think that's the right assumption because every one of those disintegration chambers has guards with guns. And if everyone was walking mindlessly in the disintegration chambers, you don't need guards with guns. The point. The, the other thing I would say is that if you think about a samurai and the samurai is ordered by their Lord to commit seppuku, and that is hundreds and hundreds of years of tradition, that samurai is brave to do it. It might be that they're warped into thinking that, which they, you know, they believe this is their duty. They, this is what they were raised to have their value system. And she, when she says, my life is as dear to me as yours is to you, I think she is incredibly brave. Now, we can disagree with what she's doing, just as I would disagree with the samurai who commits seppuku. But based on what her culture is, she is, in her mind, sacrificing her life, which is as dear to her as Kirk's is to him, in order to save other lives, because that is what their culture is based on. There are all sorts of cultures in the world that I don't agree with. And there's all sorts of times that Americans and other people have tried to teach cultures that they felt were doing it wrong, mm -hmm. how to do it right, mm -hmm. because we thought we knew. And yet, and this, of course, is literally right in the middle of Vietnam. And it's also at this moment, 12 days after we left Afghanistan and three days after the Taliban took over Afghanistan. That's 20 years of us thinking that a culture was wrong. And that and I still think it's wrong, but they don't. And so the ability of one culture like Kirk to walk into a, a world, look at one thing and in five minutes, knowing nothing else to decide that he is going to completely change their culture. I got a problem with it. Even though I don't want to, I don't like the world where people walk into disintegration chambers. That seems just as horrible to me as it does to you. The one last thing I'll say is that we have in many, many ways in this country separated ourselves consciously from the violence and destruction of war. One of the examples being during the Vietnam war where they stopped showing the bodies coming home. 
was a very, very clear choice to isolate and insulate Americans from seeing the actual destruction of war. The other one is that now much of our military, not much of our military, a percentage of our military is fighting using drones. And that means that there's some guy in Nevada sitting using uh, what looks like a video game to kill people. Now, I have no judgment against that guy. That guy is serving his country. He is he is being as dedicated and as self-sacrificing as a soldier who is out in the field. But the distance between the pain and violence of war from someone who's flying a drone or from someone very, very high up in a bomber or from someone who's got their button on a nuclear weapon is a long, long way from someone going hand to hand with a sword with some other guy. There is a big, huge difference. And in fact, we've had very little of the actual experience of war on this continent other than Pearl Harbor and maybe, and we might say 9-11, there has been very, very little actual war in the United States. And yet the United States has been responsible for a lot of war all around the world. And so that that's why I go like, well, I, again, I'm against the disintegration chamber as much as you guys. More and more, I am very wary. And this is, and again, you know what this all goes to is the prime directive. The prime directive doesn't exist in order for us to deal with countries where we agree with everything that's going on. The prime directive only matters if we hate what's going on in that other world. Okay. Uh, Hmm. Very, very well said, Steve. Uh, I'm going to say again that I think Maya 3 would have been brave if she did not. I agree. If she she resisted. If she totally. if she burned her draft card, that's what that's the equivalent of her not, or at least as far as this episode goes, that would have been the equivalent of of her not going in the chamber, is 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 her burning the, her draft card. That's bravery because that's taking a stand. How do you? I'd be interested in how do you plan a life? Like how do you like? Do you go to school? Like how do you become a doctor in that civilization? Do you mm-hmm. do you are you, can you devote yourself to say eight years of medical school, knowing that one day maybe your university is just declared a disaster zone and it's destroyed and you have to walk into a booth? How how are you able to move forward and and have a have a vibrant society, knowing that any minute you could be declared a casualty of war and you have to walk into a disintegration booth? Agreed. I mean that's that's a pretty horrible. State of affairs. It is. Two things. One is we all live in the shadow of death and we all do things where our lives are at risk. So we've had for the last year and a half a pandemic going around and we have seen a lot of people die. We didn't stop living our lives. We figured out how to deal with it. Well, that's, that's a, one thing. That's the what they thing. did. That's what the well, Armenians did. They they know well, that that their lives right. could be cut short at any moment, but they're they're going to continue to live their lives as they should. And wait, well, before you it, go, oh, on, hang no, on. no, I got to respond to what All you right. said before. So, w- you, the culture. We don't know anything about music, art, religion, love. We don't know if we don't know if they have polyamorous relationships or if they're celibate for 20 years. We know literally nothing about them other than this one aspect. They might have the richest, most amazing, most fantastic, incredible lives in the world. And maybe even because they live under the shadow of death, they're really, really living life to the fullest. We don't know. See, I would, but I, I would disagree, disagree with Steve. you because I, I think if, if they were that way, they would stop, they would have stopped this war. Because the, the fact that they've normalized this kind of human destruction sh- says something about them. And I, I think that any, any culture that have, would have vibrant art, vibrant literature, 
this wouldn't have existed. They would have been able to stop this hundreds of years before. I tell you, we should have heard something by now. Aye, Doctor, and that we should. But we haven't, and we can erase them. And I love the moment where Scotty says, What would you suggest? Me? I'm a doctor. If I were an officer of the line, I... Would you have me open fire? Of course not. Yeah, they have great chemistry. Jimmy Doohan and DeForest Kelly are, are terrific. Uh, and, I mean, all the chemistry between every interpersonal relationship on this series, the chemistry, the dynamic, and that's what I love most about the show is the characters. And we get a call from Captain Kirk. Everything is okay. Diplomatic <laughs> relationships are established. And we just want everyone to come down to the planet for shore leave. Uh, Captain. Yes, Mr. Scott. All personnel. All personnel. And of course, we see that this is a non-seven who somehow is uh, Ruck-style faking Kirk's voice. And Scotty, of course, is immediately suspicious of this. Well, now, what do you think of that? I don't know. But I do. That's why Scotty is in command. (laughs) Yep. And he checks with the computer and finds out that was not Captain Kirk. And Scotty doesn't, he doesn't miss a beat. He doesn't wait. He knows absolutely that was not his captain. And that is why Scotty is in command. And we're back to our guys. And and this is something, this is a screenwriting technique that's called enter late and leave early. And what enter late and leave early means is you start in the middle of the conversation. And what we start with is... Are you sure you can do it, Mr. Spock? That's a great, great bit of screenwriting and how to get into the scene. And what we hear is... Limited telepathic abilities are inherent in Vulcanians, Captain. When did the word Vulcanians get jettisoned? Like that that's doesn't isn't one that anyone uses anymore. Yeah, yeah. For most of the first season, Spock was Vulcanian. And then at one point right. he became Vulcan. I want to say this is probably one of the last times the words Vulcanian yeah. was used. Man, Nemo placed this so great. The I'm gonna mind meld with the dude on the other side of the door, and it shot really well, and I love the guard's reaction on the other side. As he slowly gets taken over, it's really well done. And you know what, Rob? What I love about this episode is that in one of the rare, rare cases of continuity for the original series, when they're being held prisoner by the Kelvins and by any other name, Kirk reminds Spock about the incident on Amini R7 when he tricked the guard into thinking we escaped. I love because it happened so rarely that there was yes. like, hey, remember back on Janus 6, you know? <laughs> I wish they did that more, but it's okay. Again, we live in a world that's very different now, but it, it it's always great when you got those callbacks. And then there's a moment at the end of the scene that I think is really interesting and worth taking a moment for. Mr. Spock, we'll need more weapons. I understand. We'll try to take it easy, but if we're forced to kill... I think this is such an interesting moment because it tells us something about Spock that maybe we haven't seen before, about that he and Kirk are not necessarily on the same place when it comes to violence. Well, clearly they're not. Yeah. Because there have been many times, most recently in Arena, they were not on the same page. That's right. That's a great point. Kirk was like, we are going after the Gorn. They didn't know yet that they were Gorn, uh, but they were, we're going after these invaders and we're going to destroy them. And Spock is like, well, maybe, you know, maybe the pursuit was enough. So they were not on the same page. And Kirk even snaps at Spock on the bridge, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of humiliates Spock in front of the rest of the senior officers. But in this case, they are on the same page. But there is, but I think it's a really, it's a really nice little bit of character. It's not that Spock isn't going to do what is necessary, is that Kirk knows that Spock has a real reluctance 
towards violence. And I think that's a great, great little bit for their characters. Um, they head out and we find a disintegration chamber. An entrance, Captain. But no exit. They go in, but they do not come out. This image right here is the cover of photo novel number four. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> nice. Rob, I love that you know that. <laughs> and who shows up to be disintegrated but Maya. And they stop her. What do you think you're doing? I'm, I'm going. You're not going in there. But I must. No, you're not. Mr. Spock, that guard. This moment is so awesome. <laughs> Spock walks up and says, Sir, there's a multi-legged creature crawling on your shoulder. Nimoy's delivery is just sublime, too. And he takes him out with the famous Spock neck pinch. Yeah. FSNP. And then Kirk gets everyone to move away from uh, the disintegration chamber and he destroys it. Okay. This is the moment where Kirk pulls this episode's equivalent of a Corbomite maneuver. Because now there's no turning back. He's destroyed the disintegration chamber. He's going to do whatever he can to not only save the Enterprise, but stop the war. He is a, a protester. You know, this episode was filmed in the end of 66, beginning of 67. Vietnam was was definitely getting worse. And so were the protests and the riots and the counterculture was making its voice heard. You know, Kirk represents a whole lot in this episode. He's not just out to save the enterprise and to stop the war on this planet. You know, what he represents is the voice to stop the war. I mean, what his his dialogue is is meant to be heard beyond the context of this episode. Rob, agree or disagree? No, I I completely agree with that. I mean, it, it absolutely. And I, I, you know, the the actions that that transpire from here on out are. I mean, Kirk has made the decision to bring down this entire society. Yeah it's pretty definitive what he's going to do. And in terms of you, you think about things like the prime directive, he's literally going to stop what this society has been doing for 500 years. Now imagine if that were to happen today. Wow. What if someone steps in and decided, you know what? American democracy, not working. You guys have been corrupt for 400 years. You, you never do what you say you're going to do. We're going to put an end to it. But yeah, let's imagine that. And they do it in like a day. Hmm. Well, that's what Kirk is doing to Amini R7 right now. Well, and how would we feel about it? We wouldn't like it. Yeah. And and <laughs> and I think I think what's really interesting, while I've always believed that Star Trek is like, you know, the world that John F. Kennedy would have made had he not been assassinated, the Camelot of of, of that era. Mm-hmm. Sure. The, mm-hmm. the 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 promise of going to the mood, not in this decade, because <laughs> we do it because it is hard. That whole kind of thing. Yeah. But the thing is, if you really think about what Kirk has instigated here, he's instigated really the full-on meltdown and destruction of a civilization that has found a way to exist for 500 years, monstrous as though it may be. It might be the most egregious example of Kirk employing cowboy diplomacy. It, literally, he's wrecking a civilization in a day. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's what I think. And he's wrecking a civilization. And now I think that it needed to be wrecked. But, you know, there was a, there was actually a um, I don't remember it too well, but I think Peter David wrote a Star Trek comic book called The Trial of James T. Kirk, 
where Anon Seven comes back and testifies against Kirk's actions. Hmm. And they talk about how, well, real war did break out for a while and people were killed before peace was achieved. And I mean, if that's the case, what he is setting off here is going to save lives ultimately. But he's also, I mean, look what he's doing. He's destabilizing a stable civilization. Yep. Okay. I think, I think the important thing that we need to remember here, okay, especially Steve, because I, I, you certainly made it clear how you feel. He's not just destabilizing a stable civilization for the sake of it. He is giving them back the real horrors of war and taking the risk that these civilizations will look at each other and go, we would rather not fight for real. It's, it's not so much the decision as the risk that Kirk is making with the decision. And Spock says, you know, that you took a big risk. And McCoy says, you didn't know it would work. And Kirk says, you're right. I didn't know. But sometimes a feeling is all we have to go on. And Kirk trusted his instincts that the Amenians would rather not fight a real war than, than risk all that bloodshed. That's the thing that you have to remember through all of this is that Kirk was taking a very big risk. It was a big gamble and and he won. And look, I, I know about the trial of Kirk. I know about that comic. Uh, great story, but it's not canon. So, no, so it's not. <laughs> um, I think there's different ways to look at this episode. And I think the way I always, if we take the episode at face value, I, I agree 100%. I think this is a stagnant culture. I think what they're doing is horrible. I think Kirk sees the solution to solve the problem and solves it. And that Aminiar and Vendikar are better off in the future. I think that's what the story is telling us. But I think there are other things maybe to find in here as well. And what I think is really interesting, Scott, that you brought up is the relationship of this to Vietnam. Because what what struck me so powerfully watching it this time is that it's 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 kind of on both sides. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It, it that Kirk is both, as you say, the protester in the street saying, "Hey, war is wrong. This is dumb. Let's stop." But Kirk is also the powerful interloper messing in somebody else's culture who doesn't particularly know everything about it. The Federation prisoners have attacked their guard and escaped. They are armed. Disintegration station number 12 destroyed, Councilman. And he tells his weapons banks to aim at the Enterprise and to open fire. Destroy the Star Cruiser. Those are the orders of the Council. For real. Like they're actually opening up so we know that they've got planetary defense weapons that are ready to go at a moment's notice. I mean, what I loved about this is it says that we're one trigger away from actually going to war. And they enforce that power on on the Enterprise. Well, and I think they have to be. In a weird way, they're in a Cold War with Vendikar, is that both sides actually have to have real weapons yes. or their system doesn't work. Because they both have to have the threat of actual war. So, so there's a Cold War element to this. It's Act 3. We're back on the Enterprise and nothing particular is going on except suddenly sensor readings just shut off the scale because they are under fire. One of the things I do love about this episode, no matter what, 
and no matter what, I mean, I, I love the episode. Uh, is It is an action-packed episode. No, it's a really fast-paced, exciting yeah, episode. it really is. You know, there is nothing – like it flies by uh, the, the action-adventure series that NBC wanted from the start is right there. Even though there is a very big metaphor lurking beneath the surface, but this episode does fly by. Uh, what one thing that's missing from this episode is a romance. And in the earlier versions of the outlines, there was supposed to be a romance between Kirk and Maya Three, who was the daughter of a non-seven. But the way the romance played out in the earlier teleplays. Uh, it just didn't work, and Gene Kuhn just got rid of the romance and the you know the the father daughter relationship between Anand and Maya. So mm. so there is no romance, and I think you know the episode is actually better for it. But otherwise, the episode does have it all. One quick nitpick is the you're getting hit by these powerful sonic vibrations out in space. There's no sound in space, so that doesn't make, actually make sense. But that's okay. <laughs> and we're talking about what to do, and we can't fire our phasers because we got our screens up. But we can hit him with a few photon torpedoes. And just as Scotty says that, who walks onto the bridge but Ambassador Fox, who says, "You would do no such thing, Mister Scott." And he thinks this must be a misunderstanding. And Scotty says, well, they're holding our captain. We don't have proof of that. We came in to establish diplomatic relations with these people. But they're the ones who are looking for a fight, Mr. Fox. This is a diplomatic matter. If you check your regulations, you'll find that my orders get priority. The interesting thing is that Fox is on the Enterprise when these sonic beams start, you know, shaking the yeah. shaking the ship. Doesn't he feel that, or do they only feel it on the bridge? <laughs> Part of what's weird about this and the way they set it up, and why Scott, I like the idea of a, a damaged Enterprise better, is that we started this whole thing by our ambassador being an idiot, and not only an idiot, but kind of a an evil idiot. You know, the, the, the guy, what's the uh, commissioner in um, Galileo 7? What's his name? Uh, commissioner Ferris. Ferris. Commissioner Ferris, his goal is to save a whole bunch of lives. A whole bunch of people are going to die if we don't leave. That's a, that's a morally positive one. We might disagree with what his choices are, but his motivations are good. This guy, yes, he has a, a cause, but everything he's doing is just terrible. Diplomats. The best diplomat I know is a fully activated phaser bank. Great quote. Great Scotty quote. <laughs> it's a fantastic quote. It also is what it sort of um, fogs up morally where this show is, because that is exactly the kind of thing someone who was for the Vietnam War would say, is that the, the problem is, you know, trying to negotiate with these people, that doesn't make sense. We need to only negotiate from a position of strength. We need to use as much military force as possible in order to negotiate a good position. That's an argument that would have been made in the during the Vietnam era, certainly has been made now many, many times throughout Iraq and Afghanistan. And I actually think Scotty, I think he's the most military character on the Enterprise. That we know of, for sure. Yeah, that makes yeah. about sense. Absolutely. Yeah. I love, I love that they go back to where they were being held. Why did we come back here, Captain? The last place to look for us is the place we escaped from. Cover the door. One of the crew members is uh, Yeoman Tamara. And guess who that character, Steve, was supposed to be in the earlier versions. Still? Yeah. Still Yeoman Rand? Wow. Yes. Yes. In the early versions, in the early outlines and early teleplays, Yeoman Rand was supposed to join the landing party to Amini R7 and someone, not quite sure who, but someone on the writing staff said, do we need Yeoman Rand? Poor <laughs> Grace Lee Whitney. I just, oh, you, know, I know. I, you know, Rob, do you think that 
the original series, once it got past Miri and, you know, Bran's walk off on Conscience of the King, would you have liked to have seen Star Trek with Rand in three seasons? Or do you think that Kirk was better off without her? I don't know if this is going to be a popular thing to say, but I think the show was better off without her. Interesting. I, I think she was a vestige of a different time. I, I saw no evidence that she wouldn't always be played as the damsel in distress. And I think by removing that, the show relied less on that trope, which made it a better show. And the fact that, you know what, that's a really good point. And the fact, going back to what we were saying at the top of this episode about Uhura, the way that she was underutilized, I I agree with your assessment, Rob, that Rand would have been also underutilized beyond being a damsel in distress. And and as much as I feel like she gave a lot there, you know, she contributed a lot to the drama of Kirk. Now it's a different show anyway, because of Gene Kuhn. So I agree with that. We've obviously done some other raids because we got now four disruptors. We got some clothes. We have a communication device that maybe Spock can augment in order to reach the ship. I want you to give me a complete layout this building complex. How do I get to the war? No. This is where I think she's brave. I mean, you you could disagree, but I think she believes in a thing and she is not willing to bend on it because of her belief system, even though I disagree with her belief system. Okay. Well, I, I think that she believes in that belief system because she can't see the bigger picture. And Kirk is giving her the bigger picture that this can end this. You do not need to walk into a chamber and give your life. And I think that Kirk is making her, trying to make her see the light when he says, We're going to try and stop the killing. Try to help. Believe me. There's this incredible disconnect, though, because, again, it's like when America rolls into a country and says, we're going to bring you democracy. Yep. The people are like, what, I, what is that? You know, we just assume everyone's going to understand democracy. And here's the thing about Star Trek, if I could fault it in any way, shape or form. And I, you know, obviously it's my jam. I've loved Star Trek since I was five years old. (laughs) I'm always usually of the opinion that what our characters are doing is correct. Yeah. But they're they're like bulls in a china shop here. And look, I think what they want to do is end the war permanently so no one is dying. No one's walking into a disintegration booth and no one's going to start shooting interplanetary ballistic nukes at one another. I mean, that's the idea is to stop the uh, yep. war. So I, I get that. But the methodology that's happening, I can only imagine that it's going to be so disruptive to this civilization that it could tear the it could tear the whole civilization apart because they've organized themselves around this principle of this ongoing war. And, you know, that is monstrous as well. I mean, I've always used this episode. People have always asked me, Rob, if you were to make a new Star Trek series, what would your Star Trek series be? Mm -hmm. And I said, I would do an entire season. I've always said this, where the Enterprise goes to Aminiar and Vendikar, and you'd spend the entire season dealing with this situation. And instead of just do it in one episode, you'd spend 10 episodes dealing with the ramifications of what's going on here. You really do and, like this episode. <laughs> no, yeah, I've said I that love a lot. this idea. I absolutely love I, the idea. I, I think it would be an incredible show because, you know, you always have in, in classic Star Trek because of the 60s and what happens, you beam down, you know, and everyone finds out somehow from orbit where the one place you have to go that runs the entire planet is. And they beam down to be like, 
aliens roll up and they know exactly whether to go to Washington, D.C. or Beijing or London or wherever. And, and they just happen to talk to everybody they need to talk to. But wouldn't it be interesting to watch this episode play out over 10 episodes? Absolutely. When you could really get, delve in and you'd find out that there were dissenters. You'd find out about the media. You'd find out about all these people who wonder, isn't there a better way to do this? And you could examine this entire because this situation is so interesting and so compelling. And there could be so many other fa- and they would go to Vendicar. Yep. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I know they talk about serialized storytelling uh, in modern Star Trek and modern television. But to me, where you have to look is just look back at classic Star Trek episodes and pick your 10 favorites and go. We don't have to actually go back to a meteorite Vendicar, but a situation where where that's that compelling. Well, and you're looking at one situation from every angle. That, to me, could be a modern Star Trek show that I would get behind. Okay, so I, I, I absolutely love that idea. I love it so much. And and here's the thing is, A, it could be serialized, but it's serialized within a specific theme. And the lessons, like we love the Gene Kuhn, the devil in the dark, the less the arena, the, oh, I, I didn't really understand the situation. Well, in the real world, these situations you can't just learn in an hour is that right. these situations are super, super complicated. And I'm trying to think of how to say this really quickly. So the Scott's heard me talk about this uh, partner I made a bunch of documentaries with named Mike Hoover. And through Mike Hoover, I've gotten involved or had a lot of connections with uh, people from Afghanistan because in addition to, he literally is the most interesting person in the world. And so in addition to filming Everest and five unsupported trips to Antarctica and you know, uh, windsurfing from Alaska to the Soviet Union and parachuting into Papua New Guinea and about a million other stories I could tell you. He also was embedded with the Mujahideen for three years filming for CBS in Afghanistan during the war against the Soviets. And so he and I tried to create at least three or four different a feature film, a documentary, a documentary series, a TV series, a news series about Afghanistan. And so and what I learned from talking to him is that the situation there is so complicated and so nuanced and so not what we think and that we rolled in there thinking that they were going to like what we were selling. And of course, a lot of a lot of them did. If you were in Kabul or Kandahar, absolutely. Sure. But we didn't understand that this is a really, really complicated and diverse culture. And there's a lot of different opinions. And one really, really basic one is that Part of that culture is you need to sit down and have tea and talk for at least an hour before you talk about anything important. And Americans are just like your Captain Kirk. Let's get right to the stuff. And so we had a very hard time, particularly in the beginning of the war in Afghanistan, just just having the serious conversation with people. First of all, Rob, I think your idea for a 10-episode limited series on just this episode expanding it is a phenomenal idea because of the fact that this episode for a 50-minute episode has a whole lot on its mind and it is so big in its scope and its production design and its extras and its wardrobe that I would love to see this. And I would invite all of our listeners to go to our Facebook page, Enterprise Incidents, and let us know what you think of Rob Burnett's idea about a 10-episode special Star Trek series just on the Armenian-Vendikar <laughs> conflict, sort of a 10-part version of A Taste of Armageddon, if you will, showing everything from all sides, including seeing 
seeing the other side on Vendicar. I think that is a great idea. But but again, you know, Kirk is not forcing democracy on these people. He's taking away the tidiness of war. He is showing people who've forgotten for 500 years what a real war will be like. And he's scaring the pants off of these people so that they will stop the war completely. He will stop the death completely. He's taking the risk that they will will not let that happen. And in the end, his gamble was right. Rob, go ahead. He's also imposing his own beliefs and his own, our own humanity, uh, let's call it the United Federation of Planets beliefs on this planet. And he's not giving them a choice. You know, he's, right. he's literally, and, and while he's gambling, he's one man who's gambling on two planetary bodies, two planetary governments to do the right thing. And, and while it's great in a Star Trek episode, 50 minutes, <laughs> I do one. And I, by the way, I love it, you know, I, because we, what we're doing is we're trying to bring, we're, we're discussing nuance and things that aren't necessary. It's not fair for us to yeah. be discussing this episode the way we are in the when we're discussing the course of a hour long show. So in an hour long action adventure show that was made in 1966 and 67, this to me is a great conversation to have. And I think it's a great episode of Star Trek, but I, I would love it if, even you get in a great McCoy Spock argument. Who are you to do this, Jim? Well, you know? well, wait yeah. a minute, Rob. You see McCoy not in this episode. You do see McCoy say to James Kirk, "Who are you to do this?" You're in condemning a private- these people to yes, decades yes. of war. Right. All right, Doctor. That is a private little war, and I already know when we get to a private little war. In season two of Enterprise Incidents, that is going to be a hell of a conversation, uh, just like this one is. But right now we're with the War Council. And what I love about Anon Seven is that he's really human. He's trying to figure out what yep. to do. You can feel him trying to make the right decisions. This is a grave crisis, and I am at a loss to know how to proceed. He's not a bad man at all. Like, no. like he's he's actually I, I that's one of the reasons I really love this character is he's you know, he gets increasingly more frantic. Like, don't you understand? I am trying to stave off a far worse thing than the society that we've built for ourselves that lives with this. Yeah. You're, you're about to cause us a world of hurt and I can't allow it. And just as he's wrestling with this, he gets a call from Ambassador Fox, who goes, I think there's some kind of misunderstanding. And I love Anon 7 plays it beautifully. An error in our sensors indicated that your ship was about to attack us. I am giving orders that our attack be stopped. One split second, you know, he puts it on mute. He says, as soon as our screens are down, open fire. <laughs> and then he goes back. You're right. Plays it perfectly, shifting his tones like a superb actor that he is. Diplomacy, gentlemen, should be a job uh, left to diplomats. You will, of course, immediately resume a peaceful status. And this is so great. This might be my favorite Scotty moment of the, of the original series. No, sir. I will not. What did you say? I'll not lower the screens, not until the captain tells me to. His standing up to Fox in this moment with all the threats Fox lays on it, he is so strong. He is so together. He is absolutely so sure that he is doing the right thing, which, of course, he is. It's great. I want you and expect you to obey my lawful orders. No, sir. I won't lower the screens. 
on top of Kirk taking his big risk, you have Scotty on the Enterprise taking his big risk by standing up to Fox. I can have you sent to a penal colony for this. That you can, sir. But I won't lower the screens. There's just so much drama in one 50-50-minute episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, 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 the joke... It's so funny when you go like, oh, this guy is Scottish, so let's have a Scottish joke. Oh, Scotty. Now you've done it. Aye, the haggis is in the fire for sure. (laughs) Is that an expression? That's a Scotty expression. Has anyone ever said that before? And I'll not lower my defenses on the word of that mealy-mouthed gentleman down below. Anon, alone in his quarters, having a drink, and Kirk enters with a disruptor. It's another fantastic scene. Great scene. Both actors are just so great. Amazing chemistry together. And Kirk uh, holds the disruptor, which would be redressed to be the Klingon weapons in mm. Errand of Mercy and so on for the Klingons. But uh, I love Anon, Anon saying to Kirk, I was right. You are a barbarian. <laughs> and Kirk like, um, is like, yeah, I am. <laughs> but we're not going to kill today. <laughs> well, and this speech from Anon is so interesting because he says, of course you are. We all are. A killer first, a builder second. A hunter, a warrior, and let's be honest, a murderer. That is our joint heritage, is it not? I'm not sure why it's their joint heritage, but I think it says something about how Aminiar has evolved. Like that thing that he just said, I think that is deeply embedded in the culture. And their way, in his mind, their way of not being that is to do what his culture is doing. You take a lot of chances, Councilman. You're worried about your ship, Captain. I'm trying to save a world. If I were you, I'd think about saving my life. I think Kirk's tactics with Anon are really interesting because, so let me ask you this question. He's very aggressive. He's physical. He speaks in in what I would say is almost an uncharacteristically aggressive attitude. Is Kirk putting on a bit of an act here? Is he overplaying his violence? Yeah, in this I think scene? he is. Me too. Absolutely, he is. I do. I actually do too. Yes. And at this moment, as Anon offers Kirk a drink again, we see him push a little button on his console. Let's let's go back to that. If I were you, I'd worry about saving my life. Yeah. You think Kirk is is wrong? Do you think Kirk is wrong in this moment, Rob? Can, can, I'm sorry. Can I ask a question first? Yeah. Are we saying that Kirk is genuinely about to kill him? Or is he wrong to threaten to kill him? Is he What's wrong? Your is he is he wrong for threat? Is, is he wrong to 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 put Anon on the spot and say, "If I were you, I'd worry about saving my life." Is that is is he wrong to 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 force that on Anon Seven? No, I think it's a tactic. I think it's a coercion tactic. And I mean, I don't think Kirk wants to kill anybody. You know, that's I, I think when it came down to brass tacks, he wouldn't do it. But he realizes he's in a situation that calls for, let's call it tough love, mm-hmm. you know, and, and he, he I think a lot of what's going on because there's a gambit that's played later on in this episode that I also think is BS that falls along with the Corbomite maneuver that we'll get to. But I, I think, you know, Kirk knows that these people don't know our ways and he's he's a, he's good at playing up things to make people think that this is what's going to happen. And by adding in a little craziness to it all. Or a little forcefulness, Kirk is con- he's doing what he has to do to convince people that he's going to act a certain way. In this case, in this moment, I don't think in any way Kirk is go- is really actually going to shoot a non seven. No, I don't. I don't think so. It's either. not his character. But but so, uh, but what I do think 
is that this is all part of his plan. It's all part 100%. of his gamble. It's a gamble. Absolutely. He's going on his gut. He's going on his feeling. He doesn't know if it's going to work, but he's willing to take the chance that they will stop the war rather than fight the real thing. The, the, the difference is he's gambling with other people's lives. Well, right. Yeah. The war is between Aminiar and Vendikar. He's gambling that by taking, by pulling the plug, uh, by showing them the real horrors of war, right. that they will not fight it. He's taking that chance. Yes. There's a lot at absolutely. stake here. We agree. There's the, we the, agree. the enterprises at stake, the, the lives of billions of people on two worlds is at stake. And, yep. and Kirk is you know definitely the bravado, the boldness that, that Gene Kuhn has instilled into this character is, is being played probably far greater than any other episode, uh, even A Private Little War. But all he wants to do is stop the bloodshed. And I think we agree. He is willing to risk a whole bunch of people's lives that, in order to do that. That is what he's trying to do. Mm-hmm. But the ne- and the next moment, you mentioned Kirk being like maybe more aggressive than he is at any other time in the series. The next moment is the key. And it is awesome. <laughs> it is bizarre. I could destroy this planet. Why do you think I don't let you talk to your ship? I don't need the ship for that. that is something (laughs) yeah yeah now clearly this episode i mean you know when i say he's never been more brash than than any other time i mean in this episode not just in that scene and anon says i had no idea you were so formidable (laughs) again kirk you seem to think i'm joking it's amazing and kirk again is trying to get his communicators very well captain they're in the wall go left down the corridor left again they are unguarded. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Kirk yeah, goes sure. to the door, <laughs> realizes something is up, grabs Anon. Well, wait, wait. He, he doesn't just grab Anon. He he motions, gestures for him like, come here. Nice try, Laoshe. You know, he motions for him to come <laughs> over and then he pushes him through the door into the security uh, guards, gets into the knockdown drag out fight with these guys and is overpowered. Loses. Did he? A man like that would have preferred to die fighting. One quick thing: I've done some fight choreography back in the in the day, and there, you could see a key thing of bad fight choreography. And it's just for anyone who ever wants to do it: is one of the things that happens is the one of the guys is late, and so Kirk pushes a guy away, and he's standing there motionless waiting for someone to come up so he can do his next move. That's a, you didn't have quite enough rehearsal to get the timing just right to do the fight choreography right. Um, Act four, Fox and his assistant being down. I don't know how we didn't have to lower our screens for them to do that, but it's not going to worry about it. And Anon goes to greet them. Mr. Ambassador, I am truly sorry for what must happen. I beg your pardon. You and your party have been declared war casualties. You will be taken immediately to one of our casualty stations so that your deaths may be recorded. And the moment of Fox realization going, you mean we are to be killed? It's really a comeuppance, actually, because we really don't like that guy. But yet we still feel bad for him at this moment. Of course. Because the backbone that he had been showing up to this point is gone. And now we see someone who is scared to death that yep, they're going to yeah. die. It's a it's Absolutely. a great moment. It's a great, like, the veil has been lifted and he's scared. Under no circumstances shall anyone beam down from the Enterprise. They'd be killed the moment they arrived. That Pop and Jay Fox went down a couple of minutes ago. 
The ambassador. Orbit out to maximum phaser range and stand by for further orders. Spock out. By the way, this next moment with Spock, I think he's almost being Kirk-like in this next thing. He says "You to the yeoman, what's her name? Tamora. Tamora yeoman yeah. Tamora. So this is why it's great having Scott Mance, I know that you, <laughs> you always have my back. You stay here and prevent this young lady from immolating herself. Knock her down and sit on her if necessary. This is a killing situation. And by the way, when, when Spock walks out and uh, Yoma Tamara is standing there at the door with her arms folded and her hand on the disruptor, I love it. <laughs> We're at the disintegration chamber and there is Mr. Fox, Ambassador Fox. Ladies and gentlemen, please move quickly away from the chamber or you may be injured. What are you doing, Mr. Spock? Practicing a peculiar variety of diplomacy, sir. <laughs> Peculiar is what is a word and a half for it, Captain. <laughs> I, I think I think the thing about this episode is that it's so good. It's just a really, really good episode. And that's why I say I was always swept along in it and having so much fun. And Spock is now on board and we all know what we're trying to do and we all know what is wrong. And we all know that we have to stop this horrible massacre of these people walking into disintegration chambers. It all totally, totally works. And it's only me grumpy, grown-up, older Steve looking at it and thinking about our world where I go, whoa, 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 you know, but the episode itself is totally working. Well, I was going to say, Steve, I mean, I think, you know, obviously you're making great points, but but it's obviously it's it's always important to remember what this episode of of science fiction action adventure allegorical television from 1966-67 is. And I think what it was supposed to do. Yeah. I was it was it and it succeeds like gangbusters because it makes you think about the situation it has our characters have a really interesting solution which with with a great moral dilemma but obviously it it, it does so wonderfully well in 52 minutes but when we come at it like from a different standpoint where you're going to examine it from, I don't know, a political theory point of view, it changes. <laughs> it, well, that's, that's when you do the 10 episode version of this. Totally. Well, <laughs> yeah. I think that's what, I think that's what's fun. And that's what Scott and I've had so much fun doing is like, absolutely look at it as this 1966 piece of art in it, in that perspective and take a different perspective and take a different perspective and see and what I think we found that's so remarkable about this series they really have so much to give, you know, mm. there's just so much like if it wasn't such a good show, we wouldn't be able to dig into it in this way. Like, do you well, think I- that that the Rob, Rob, do you think that that 55 years after this episode was produced, that here we are having this extremely deep and heavy conversation <laughs> that this series that little Rob and little Steve and little Scott, like <laughs> that, that we would be at middle age and really getting into a very heated deep dive conversation about the various issues that this episode raises and represents and how provocative it is and how there are clearly, clearly to everyone who has been listening for these last two hours that there are no easy answers. I think that's great. Well, I think that, you know, that testifies to how great art is. The reason yeah. we still read Shakespeare's plays are there are human truths embedded in any great story that really don't change. They might have different things to say to different generations, but the compelling arguments and the compelling examinations of of we as human beings and the decisions we make are never something that goes out of style. 
And I think one of the things about classic Star Trek, I mean, nowadays we live in a world where so many people can be dismissive of the original series because of simply the way it looks or the visual effects. But uh, I don't. I mean, I still look at them. I, I look at them. They were wonderfully well done at the time. And, you know, 55 years later, they can still be uh, used. Obviously, Star Trek never leaned heavily on its visual effects to tell its story. It was just to provide plot points. Mm -hmm. And I think it testifies to what great stories, for the most part, the original series tells. And, you know, you watch an episode like this and anybody who's writing any kind of television, perhaps not just, say, if they were making Star Trek today, the quality of writing that is established in the original series is quite excellent yes. for the most part, especially Absolutely. the scripts that Gene Kuhn yeah. does. And I think that it really, if you were going to update this series in any way, shape or form, the people that are writing it need to take a long, hard look at these kinds of episodes and ask themselves, are we doing what they were doing 55 years ago? And if we're not, what can we do to more emulate what star trek is because at its core it's the stories it's telling it's not the spaceships it's not the accoutrements it's the characters and the stories as with anything that is television or, or movies Completely it's always agree. about character and story mm -hmm. i totally agree and, and you mentioned shakespeare and i'm gonna say it's super super fast but but like the, the example to me because we're talking about looking at it from its time and looking at it from a different time merchant of venice to me is always one of the most interesting plays because it is clearly anti-semitic there's no question about it Shylock. but it has the greatest <laughs> uh humanist speech in all of shakespeare with the hath not a jew uh uh, you know, I can't remember the speech. I should. But it's like it says I'm human. And so embedded within this thing that we would find very dated is this thing that is amazing. And in, in a way, that's what we're finding here is that are there things that maybe they're dated in this? Maybe. But they're also but there's so much to find and discover. Um, and in fact, this scene that we're now in in the council chamber is really the argument of the idea. And Anon 7 is trying to put forth the value of what they've built. You will be responsible for an escalation that will destroy everything. Millions of people horribly killed. Complete destruction of our culture here, yes, and the culture on Vendikar. I love that he includes Vendikar in that line. Disaster, disease, starvation, horrible, lingering death, pain and anguish. And Kirk's response is a great argument. That seems to frighten you frighten any sane man because that's the point is that in kirk's mind they are not afraid enough thank you that brings me back to my point that kirk is taking a risk that they will be afraid enough to not have a real war and that they will stop the bloodshed Scott, I've never disagreed that Kirk is taking a risk to do exactly that. I agree. That is exactly what he's doing. But you just don't think that he's right to do it. Yes, I do. And I definitely don't think he's right to do what he's about to do. Are those 500 people of yours more important than the hundreds of millions of innocent people on Aminyar and Vendikar? What kind of monster are you? I'm a barbarian. You said it yourself. I love that Kirk throws his words back in his face. Yeah. And Anon 7 calls up to the Enterprise, and Scotty answers, and Kirk runs up. Scotty! General Order 24, two hours. In two hours! And they restrain him, and Anon 7 tries to talk to Scotty, but he's not talking anymore. All right. General Order 24. What is General Order 24? The Enterprise will destroy the, the entire planet in two hours. 
And Wes, is this for real? Uh, is this for real? Yeah, absolutely. Of course, it's for real. It's not a bluff. If it's not a Corbin might maneuver. There is no one staring back at Scotty, being like, "Okay, you know, pulling another bluff." Uh, General Aura Twenty Four uh, exists. You wouldn't do this. Hundreds of millions of people. I didn't start at the council, but I'm liable to finish it. Okay, so we've talked throughout about the risk Kirk is taking. The risk of getting these two planets to go to real war is nothing compared to what he just did. I think it's unconscionable. I think it's terrible. I think it is absolutely out of character. And it is, the more I think about it, I just, I I think I ignored it as a kid. Kirk has literally just basically gambled hundreds of millions of lives. I mean, he he makes Kodos the Executioner look like a wimp. (laughs) Received a message from Vendikar. Our time is nearly up. Our quota is short by several thousand. They accuse us of reneging on the treaty. You see, it started. And Anana's pleading with Kirk. This is automatic. You got to stop it. And Kirk says, stop it. I'm, I'm counting, counting on it. it. It's a great line. The Shatner's delivery of that. Stop it. I'm counting on it. <laughs> this is the commander of the USS Enterprise. All cities and installations on Emenia 7 have been located, identified, and fed into our fire control system. In one hour and 45 minutes... The entire inhabited surface of your planet will be destroyed. Is Scotty really going to do it? Yeah. He's been given an order. Scotty is fiercely loyal, and he's going to follow Kirk's order. So when Scotty is brought into the war crimes tribunal, is he just going to say, I was just following orders? Yes, I mean, we're talking about destroying a planet. Like, and what are the odds here that Kirk is going to win? Maybe they're one in 20. Yeah, but what, I mean, the odds are. Hang on, I love this good cop bad cop thing that we got going in this episode. But what's all Scotty knows is that Kirk and the landing party have been taken hostage. The Amini R seven has been firing on the Enterprise. They've been firing on the Enterprise to try to destroy the Enterprise. Kirk, yeah, Scotty is hearing Kirk's voice, and he's being told destroy the planet in twenty four in, uh, in in two hours. So after he has been lied to, after they fired on the Enterprise, after they are holding the landing party hostage, you think Scotty is not going to follow Kirk's order after Scotty himself has been provoked, after the Enterprise has been attacked, that he is not going to, you know, that the starship can destroy a planet. And based on the fact that that the Enterprise has been provoked like this, uh, that Scotty has been provoked and tested, he is going to follow Kirk's order. I want to first make sure you know that you are defending the total destruction of a planet and killing of 100 million innocent people. That's, what, you, that's what you're defending. So what you're saying is that Scotty should, should say to Kirk, no, I'm not going to follow that order? I'm saying that he shouldn't follow that. I'm not saying he should say it, but he shouldn't follow that order. There is, in our military code, a responsibility for uh, someone to not follow an unjust order. We have the Enterprise who blundered into this situation, and now they're ready to destroy the planet because of something that they messed up. That's what's happening. Okay, what's what's happening from Scotty's point of view is that this planet fired on the Enterprise. I would have been more in tune with what you're uh, proposing if the Enterprise had not been lied to and fired upon. Rob, help me out here. Am I wrong? Well, okay. Um, (laughs) There are twice in the original series where General Order 24 has been invoked. One is here 
And the other is in, you hear that uh, Garth in, on Antos 4 mm. also delivered this for Whom Gods Destroy. And that's a third season episode. <laughs> so it is a real order. I also think that it's pretty monstrous that this is even on the books yeah. as a order. I don't think that Starfleet was ever supposed to destroy a civilization at all. I think it was probably yeah. if this planet was going to explode or if it was posing some kind of a danger. I don't think the idea was to exterminate tens of millions of people. I think that if we were to find out and look at look at the intent of this order, it would be a different thing. But Kirk is using it. I don't think I think Kirk would have said belay that order if it came right down to the wire. But he's he's giving Scotty the order because Scotty has to they have to know he's not kidding. Right. It's real. Do I think Kirk would go through with it and destroy the whole planet? No, <laughs> I don't think that he would. Of course not. I think it's just part of his gamble. Right. I agree. He, he's gone all in. Kirk has gone all in. Yep. He thinks that these people, after getting to know them and, and getting to be face-to-face with a non-seven, he knows that, you know what? These people are going to do the right thing. And I might have to, might be a little tough love. They might think that we're going to destroy their planet, but that'll be worth it. Because as soon as I pulled the trigger on that disintegration booth, I was all in on this and I got to put an end to it. So I think the episode, like I said, totally works. And I don't think we're meant to spend too much time thinking about this. Right. But you I say do that think, now? <laughs> well, I think if when I watched as a kid, I didn't spend that much time thinking of this. But frankly, what I believe is the moral choice at this moment is that Kirk should rather blow up the Enterprise and kill everyone in it rather than kill every single person on this planet. That is what we're, we're talking about, literally hundreds of millions of innocent lives. And there is, no, there is no argument whatsoever that you could give me that would say it would be okay for the Enterprise to do this. Well, yeah, well, that's why I, I don't think General Order 24 says that. I think General Order 24 says, you know, if a planet is in danger of, of com- coming apart at the seams because of its core going molten, I think that's what General Order 24 is for. And Kirk is just using it in a colorful way. If there'd been some bluff, like, hey, Scotty, if I ever say General Order 24, pretend like you're going to blow up the planet. Of course, we're never going to do anything like that, but it'll be good to have in our back pocket. I'd be totally fine with that. But the idea that we're really going to do it, not fine with. But but, but, yeah, it's the drama of it, though. It's it's the drama of it. And I agree with Rob. I think I feel like at this point, Kirk is committed to his hunch, which is what it is, a hunch and a feeling that they will stop the war. Anon is having problems. He's reached the end of his leadership. What can I do? Somebody, please tell me. And in this moment of distraction, Kirk takes out the guards, gets their disruptors, puts them all up against the wall. And I love that right at the moment that Kirk has taken control, in comes Spock with his people and says, I'd assumed you needed help. I see I'm an error. No, I need the help. Kirk is standing there with disruptors in both hands. Again, like... Have you seen in any other episode Kirk display more bravado than he than that he does in A Taste of Armageddon? No, but I mean he's also he's on a high, he's playing he's in, he's in the midst of his own high wire act here, you know. And I think that in order to make this all work, he's got to he's he's committed. Yep. You know, one of the things about Kirk is that he's committed to these courses of action. And I think at the end of the day, I would love to see an after action report <laughs> like Kirk and Spock and McCoy having a drink. Like Spock just shaking his head going, you know, well, Captain, did you really have to push it that far <laughs> or something? And uh, I mean, we never got that. Not th- not to that extent. But I mean, I think that's that's what he's doing. 
You know, he's got, he's gone all in on this. Again, that's why this show was fun watching it as a kid and also watching it as an adult. The way Kirk is written in this episode is it's the kind of bravado that you want every soldier or every hero faced with such stakes to muster in order to save the day. Maybe. <laughs> um, but he calls up to Scotty, says, you know, we're okay, but if you don't hear from us, carry out General Order 24. And I love, too, that Scotty asks, is there anything else we can do? Cross your fingers. Cross your fingers. One simple little line, Steve, mm-hmm. is summing up Kirk's entire motivation. Cross your fingers. This whole operation that he has in his mind to pull the plug is all cross your fingers and hope this all works out for the best and that they will stop this war and he will not have to carry out Scotty will not have to carry out general order 24 and the then the car won't fire on a mini r7 without the returning the fire this is all a hunch it's all a hunch it's a gamble he's just he's just trusting his instincts that they will not kill today Yes, you are 100% right. I totally agree. He is 100% risking the entire life of a planet on his gut instinct and fingers crossed. That is what he's doing. And that is the idealism. That is the aspiration of Star Trek is that I'm going to believe that humanity will do the right thing. That's the positivity, the aspirational quality that the original series and Next Generation did so very well. Death, destruction, disease, horror. That's what war is all about, Anon. That's what makes it a thing to be avoided. You've made it neat and painless. So neat and painless, you've had no reason to stop it. And you've had it for 500 years. Since it seems to be the only way I can save my crew, my ship, I'm going to end it for you. One way or another. Scott, I totally agree with everything Kirk's trying to do. I just don't think you should do it. Still, within the context of what Star Trek is and the fact that you're telling the story in 52 minutes, I think it is what he should do. But what you're speaking to is a much more nuanced and yes. much more much sure. more examined situation. But within the context of Star Trek, you know, this one story, I, I think it's it's pretty great. But I but it's I agree with you that the idea of yeah, I think it's a great episode. And I've always thought it, you know, to me, like I said, it's a meat and potatoes episode, but but what you're talking about is is Kirk right to go bust up a civilization? I mean, we could do a whole, you should do it. We should do an addendum or do addendum episodes where you talk about the prime directive. Absolutely. You know, once you're done with the whole series and discuss the different uh, aspects of, of life in the 23rd century as, as conveyed by Star Trek. And I think the, you, we could do a total deep dive. Not that I would necessarily be invited back, but no, you just, I, I think you are. Yeah. yeah you're consider invited. yourself invited back, Rob. <laughs> you, you know, cause the, I think talking about the, the prime directive and there's where this discussion lies, you know, yeah. and, and what is it that we, what is it that we do? And is it a good thing? Somebody asked me on my own YouTube show the other day, do you, do you still believe in the prime directive? Do you think it was the way to go? And whenever whenever somebody says that, I mean, Kirk is flagrantly violating the yeah. prime, prime directive here. He's taking it upon himself. He didn't even consult with Starfleet and be like, hey, listen, um, there's this society. And it turns out that a meteor has been fighting this war for 500 years. What do you think about this? No, this is something Kirk just decided himself. 
He didn't even consult Kirk with anyone. Is he's a man of like, action. He's, he's a man of action, action. and he, he's just like he's decided. Yeah, there's 500 years of status quo. Eh, not for me, <laughs> and it's not for you anymore either. <laughs> and, 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 I, and I and I think that that's one of the things that is on on one hand, it's kind of like I don't think it would necessarily fly today, but in uh, in a science fiction context, in an action adventure show for an hour in 1966, 67. It certainly is a provocative hour of TV. I think it's a great hour of TV. And I think the way Kirk puts out this argument right here is fantastic. It's fantastic. Because the first thing he does is say what's going to happen. The Vendikins will now assume that you've broken your agreement and that you're preparing to wage real war with real weapons. They'll want to do the same. Only the next attack they launch will do a lot more than just count up numbers on a computer. They'll destroy your cities, devastate your planet. You, of course, will want to retaliate. If I were you, I'd start making bombs. Yes, Councilman, you have a real war on your hands. You can either wage it with real weapons, or you might consider an alternative. Put an end to it. That is a fantastic rhetorical stance. And that whole speech, that whole speech is word for word, Gene Kuhn. Gene Kuhn came in and wrote that whole speech. And he takes this thing that Anon said and then he takes it to the next level and to use it to make his point. Anon says, don't you see? We've admitted it to ourselves. We're a killer species. It's instinctive. It's the same with you. And now this is, it's one of the great speeches and I'm just going to play it. All right. It's instinctive. The instinct can be fought. We're human beings with the blood of a million savage years on our hands. But we can stop it. We can admit that we're killers, but we're not going to kill today. That's all it takes. Knowing that we're not going to kill today. Contact Vendikar. I think you'll find that they're just as terrified, appalled, horrified as you are. That they'll do anything to avoid the alternative I've given you. Peace or utter destruction. It's a fantastic speech. And it's a fantastic episode. And this was something where the Spock from the Galileo 7 was in command here. The outcome would have been very, very different. Because Spock would have been commanding by logic and Kirk was commanding on a hunch, on feeling, on luck. For Captain Kirk to be so steeped in his conviction that they'll do the right thing, they will not want to fight. That he's he's taking such a big risk. And ultimately, for the sake of this episode, which was produced in the mid to late 60s, I think that is a message that we need now. That we're not going to kill today. Today. I think we're not going to kill today is one of the great Star Trek messages of all time. I think it's an incredible piece of wisdom. And the thing is, it works. They find that old phone and they call up Vendicar and Kirk calls up to Scotty and cancels General Order 24. So in the end, he did not have to carry it out. Everything is fine. Absolutely, They're back on the Enterprise. McCoy and, and Spock in particular are saying how Turk took a big chance. It was a calculated risk. But you didn't know that it would work. No, it was a calculated risk. Still, the Aminians keep a very orderly society. And actual war is a very messy business. Very, very messy business. When this episode aired in 1967, Vietnam was just getting worse and worse and worse. And, you know, in 2021, 
war is still a very, very messy business. This episode resonates in the 21st century as strong as it did in the late 1960s. So, Scott, did, what did people say about this episode? Uh, in the end, after all was said and done, after coming close to Armageddon and trusting humanity, David Opatushu, who plays a non-seven, said about A Taste of Armageddon, I was very excited about it. It made a social comment that was very important, showing the madness of people playing war with computers. I read the script and said, by all means, I would love to do the part. You could say so many things that are taboo, all in the name of science fiction, and you can write about social problems without being stigmatized. And then Maya Three, played by Barbara Babcock, she said, it's one of the more philosophical episodes. And since this was filmed in 1967, when we were still at war with Vietnam, that issue was paramount. For me, doing those episodes of Star Trek was a thrill because they were really trying to keep up with the latest developments. So obviously, we had a lot to discuss in this episode. Obviously, it evoked strong, strong feelings. Let me say kind of what I think first, and I really want to hear from both of you. The, the biggest thing is, I think it's a great episode of television. I really, really do. My criticisms of it have nothing to do with what happens in the show. It is thrilling. It is thought-provoking. It is fast-paced. It is well-acted. There's all sorts of cool decisions. Shatner absolutely shines. The All the other cast shines. And here's my thing, is that while I admire it, I think the message it sends is a very troubling one. Because... What I've seen in my life is while I think there is a value to trusting your gut, I think we both as individuals and as societies often march into situations that we don't understand that are far more complicated than we know and think we can solve them. And I also think we believe that our culture, the way we look at things is necessarily the way everyone looks at things and that we don't understand that even if some culture is doing something that we perceive as wrong, and sometimes they are very, very wrong, you can't just walk in and fix it. It doesn't work that way. It didn't work that way in Vietnam. It's not working that way in Afghanistan. The problems that we face can't be solved with a gut instinct and a big risk. They have to be solved slowly and with complexity over time. And so while, and so for me, there's two things in this episode. There is the thrillingness of a great episode of television. And then there's ideas which I go, ooh, I disagree. All right. Well, first of all, I think the ultimate message of this episode is an aspirational one. That message is that war is messy business. That is the message of this episode. You may have issue with the way they go about, about their business with this. You may certainly have issue with the fact that, that Kirk bites off a whole lot more than he can really chew. And, and I think he does. I mean, I think he definitely crosses the line. But I think his ultimate motive is his, th that his hunch is that they will not want to fight. That's the message. Like, I think the arguments and the conversations, the deep-rooted, passionate conversations that we had, I think they are going to be better directed when we do get to a private little war where we are talking about a balance hmm. of power or even Evan of Mercy, which is about, you know, a balance of power. Uh, for this episode, the message is simple. War is messy business. And 
Kirk's motive for stopping the war, sure, is because the Enterprise was a target. He's trying to save his ship and his crew. But ultimately, the bigger picture is that the war's got to stop. And I agree, Rob, but, you know what you said, that he takes it all. He makes a decision. He does not confer with Starfleet. He definitely oversteps his authority in that respect you know, by, by uh, taking that big chance. But there wasn't time. He was stuck on the planet. He couldn't contact Starfleet. This was – his back was against the wall and all he had was this gut feeling that if I pull the plug, my fingers – will. he even says, cross your fingers. There's a lot to that. So, Steve, your argument about we think we're in the right and we go in and we, we step in in areas where we probably have no business, I completely agree with that. But I don't think that applies to a taste of Armageddon. I think that applies more to a private little war because that is a completely different uh, – the stakes are much, much different. And jumping ahead, I do have issue with Kirk's decisions in that episode. And I will say them when we get to a, you know, a, a private little war, which we're still you know, a full season away from. But in the, in the case of this episode, Kirk did not have – first of all, he was told – you're going to establish diplomatic relations. He was told by a superior, someone that he answers to, you're going to enter orbit. You know, he was following orders. And then he's trapped. He's told your ship is going to be destroyed. And, you know, Scotty is on the Enterprise and they're being fired upon. I think ultimately there was no choice but for Kirk to do what he did and to hope that it would all work out, and fortunately, it did. Rob? Well, I think there's something that we didn't even touch on that is important. Oh, no! <laughs> there's, it's important to remember about, about this episode, and I think this episode has a real lesson to teach us about the dehumanization uh, of humanity through mechanization, hmm. and the idea that nowadays, if you look at, we've turned so much over to computers. Computers have now taken over a big part of our lives that I think... We can talk about whether it was right for Kirk to bust up a, a civilization, but I don't think this particular episode necessarily lends itself to that because that's a question that isn't anywhere else in this episode. But I think what we didn't talk about is that the idea that we're turning over matters of life and death to a computer hmm. is something that we're there too. You know, we've we've come out and and we're looking at spreadsheets and decisions are being made about human beings that we're going to teach for the test because you have to have your test scores to a certain level. And whether a person's good or bad at something is no longer it's not a factor in it. And I think that that what's this episode really has to do with is, yes, war, but also the dehumanization of what mechanization can do to us. And what computers can do to us. And these people have normalized. They've normalized war away. And that's monstrous enough. But they've turned it over to a computer. Mm. You know, they've turned over all of this this stuff. The, they don't even fight on the battlefields anymore. These computers are are fighting against each other. You know, it's it's like Colossus and Colossus the Foreman Project. And from 1970, it's like Colossus and Guardian are now having running their little war games. And humanity is paying the price. War games. And, and yeah, it's the same thing. And, and it's, it's monstrous. And so this kind of, of dehumanization and, and, and taking the human element, the human toll out of war, we didn't, 
there's no not even any blood. It's not like a stamping machine. You just walk in and people just don't exist anymore. They don't even have the blood to show for it. And 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 I think that that's that's truly monstrous. And I think that's where the episode it, 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 it that's where it's directed. And of course, when Kirk or as we the audience, because we're supposed to feel what Kirk feels, sees this, of course we're going to get rid of this. Of course, in 52 minutes, this plus this place must end. This this thing must be over with because we can't allow this to stand. The Enterprise could not leave a mean ER and go back to, well, you know, there's these, these people and, you know, yesterday a million died. Tomorrow, two million might die. And they're just walking into disintegration booths. There's no possible way that our heroes on a 60s television show could allow that to stand. Bingo. There you go. And by the way, the fact that all of this is happening in a 50-minute episode, uh, that's great writing that they could figure it all out in one standalone episode. And you know, as deep and as passionate as this conversation has gotten, I think I, I just really – sometimes you got to go with your gut. And Kirk went with his gut. And it's a very, very big situation to go with your gut on. But – I think that's just that message that, 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 hey, we're, we're, you know what? You're right. War is messy business. We don't want to do the real thing. We're going to stop it. I think what really would have been interesting about this episode, and I think like what Steve and, and I could, we could also have this argument is that if the stakes were different and if it was about anything other than proxy wars being fought with computers and millions of people walking into disintegration booths, if it was something not that, and you had the story of Kirk rolling in and destroying the status quo of a civilization, to me, that could be a Star Trek movie, you know, oh, where yeah. you're dealing with the ramifications of what happens when, and they've tried to do that. The, the problem is the writing in Star Trek over the last, I don't know, 25 <laughs> years or whatever has not been up to par because I don't think that that the liter the people that were writing Star Trek in the '60s had a literary background that isn't available to a lot of people today. So I think that this discussion has been absolutely incredible, and it just reaffirms to me why this show just has so much still to teach us. And what I'm really curious about now, we've all obviously been really passionate. I know that all the, the people who listen to the show and follow us on Facebook are equally passionate about Star Trek. And I would absolutely love to hear your thoughts on some of the questions that we got into today. So please look for us on Facebook to a search for Enterprise Incidents. If you want to follow the show on Twitter, it's Enter Incidents. On Instagram, it's Enterprise Incidents. And please subscribe to the show. You will get more conversations like this. I hope we do a whole episode on the Prime Directive, Rob, with you coming back. That would be absolutely fantastic. You can subscribe to the show through Apple Podcasts, through YouTube, through Spotify. Leave your comments on YouTube. Please leave your reviews on Apple Podcasts. I feel like the three of us earned a review today. This is We went through a lot. Um, Scott, how would people reach you? Well, uh, like you said, Steve, uh, uh, those reviews on Apple Podcasts are how we stay on the map. So please do give us a review on Apple Podcasts and make sure you comment if you're listening to the audio on our YouTube channel. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Movie Mance. And make sure you head to our Facebook page, Enterprise Incidents, and let us know, do you think that Kirk was right in the decisions and that he made in A Taste of Armageddon. Simple. Yes or no? Was he right? 
Was he wrong? How do those decisions hold up after 55 years? Rob, where can people find you <laughs> on like YouTube and your Twitter handle and all that stuff? Um, you can find me on Instagram at Robert Meyer Burnett. Find me on Twitter at Burnett RM or find me on my own YouTube channel, The Burnett Work. And if I might plug uh, a movie that I produced and edited, Tango Shalom opens in Los Angeles and New York on September 3rd. Hey, congratulations. Well, congratulations. On Tango Shalom. Amazing. That is amazing. Amazing. And by the way, if you have not seen Free Enterprise, well, the movie's available on DVD and it's on Blu-ray. And if you are listening to this podcast and if you have not if you have not seen Free Enterprise, then boy, you are missing out because Rob directed a great movie, a movie that holds up when it came out in 98. Here we are in 21st century. The movie still speaks to us fans. I couldn't agree more. Free Enterprise is so fantastic. I watched it years and years ago, long before I ever got to be face-to-face with you to have this conversation. And if people want to reach me, you could do so at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. And if you want to listen to my other podcast, The Cinephiles, I have one episode and one episode only that a taste of Armageddon makes me think of, and that is Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. So, Scott, if we manage to survive another week, where is the Enterprise going to take us next? Well, the Enterprise is going on a very different kind of adventure next, uh, an episode that is very different from anything that we've seen so far in the original series up to this point. It is a, not only is it a Dorothy Fontana classic, it is a Ralph Sinensky classic. It is the first episode that Ralph Sinensky directed. The episode is This Side of Paradise, and it is a beautiful episode. So join us on the next episode of Enterprise Incidents. And until then, keep going boldly.